podcast this week, we go to sunny Belfast, so we do, with Jamie Dornan, star of the new Kenneth Branagh movie. Plus, we go to sunnier Nightmare Alley with the wonderful Guillermo del Toro. All that and more on the movie podcast that can't tell the difference between its waking <laughs> life and dreams. <laughs> Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Sorry, I, I, I'm not going to do this entire podcast. Yes, I am. <laughs> it's tremendous fun doing the Moonlight Voice. I'm Stevie. Stevie. Oh, dear. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome <laughs> to the Emperor Podcast. Episode 498? Eight, I think. Yeah. I guessed. It's exciting. I'm joined, as ever, by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning as per contractual obligation. I don't know whether they, like myself and Oscar Isaac, have been possessed by the Egyptian moon god Khonshu and therefore are doing strange British accents. Uh, but we're joined, of course, by geek queen Helen O'Hara. Helen O'Hara. Thank you, wee man. What about you there? What about you there, Helen O'Hara? Stick a night. Stick a night. Richardson, get results. My Aunt Jane, she called me in. She gave me tea out of her wee tin. Half a bop with sugar on top. What is happening? Farmer Brian's crisps <laughs> out of her wee shop. We're also joined by the one known, the great big fucking nerd. James Dyer. James Dyer is here. Hello, James. Hello, Chris. The Empire Podcast is a legitimate <laughs> political party. <laughs> <laughs> now that, that Helen, might be a hate crime. That is a hate crime. <laughs> Helen has been saying for years of my wonderful accents are hate crimes. They are not. They are loving tributes to whatever country I briefly pass through. Hello, James. How are you today? I'm fine, Chris. I'd say if you can do that awful English accent, then I can do a terrible Northern Irish accent. They, they cancel each other out. That was actually. Let me hear your Northern Irish accent. What my my the Empire podcast is a, oh that's oh, what the fuck was that? that? that was what As was a legitimate that? political party, I can say that bit. But I can't say the first bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what my like my my Belfast accent? I think was okay for about ninety minutes after finishing watching Belfast. I think I was actually I was nailing that mm-hmm. in the same way mm-hmm. that I watched uh, the Responder with Martin Freeman last night, and I could I could do proper Scouts for about half an hour afterwards, oh, and then that's that a went fucking, away as well. That's a claim. That's it a, is claim. a claim. But it didn't last. It didn't last. It's like a temporary. It's like rogue's powers in x-men like i absorb it temporarily and then it you know it fades so can we can we talk about the moon knight can we talk about the moon knight we should talk about moon knight because that is why i'm doing this accent um uh, because the trailer came out from moon knight this week ordinarily we talk about it in the news section but we'll talk about it here because we've we've been doing the accent um so this is oscar isaac as Mark Spector, who is possessed, and yes, I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, possessed by the Egyptian god Khonshu, <laughs> and uh, he does have disassociative uh, identity disorder, which is great for me because I can't even say it. And uh, so he has a number of personalities. And when we see him in the trailer, he 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 is one of his personalities, who is a British guy who works apparently what looks to be in the gift shop of the Natural History Museum, the British Museum, British Museum. It's Cersei who works in the National okay. History Museum. Yeah. All right. So so uh, the second this trailer came out, because we had a glimpse of his accent a couple of months ago, and people were having a bit of a laugh at it. And then, obviously, the trailer comes out, and more people, Brits exclusively, of course, are having a go at his accent, citing Dick Van Dyke and whatnot. And I don't think it's anywhere... I think it's actually quite a decent accent, even if I did get my own cheap gag about... <laughs> Moon Knight being a show about Daphne's brother from Frasier. Uh, <laughs> but 
because Anthony Lapalia's accent in that is famously horrendous. But I don't think it's actually that bad. It's quite no. a good specific accent. Mm. But that's it, isn't it? It's like it's it's not a bad interaction accent. It's a very specific choice to do Frank Spencer as Moonlight. <laughs> you know, that's just not a direction I saw them going in. But it's absolutely fine. Ooh, um, Betty, Thanos <laughs> has done a whoopsie. <laughs> But specifically, like, so where, like, please identify, like, I'm saying it's a specific choice. I'm not sure I can tell you exactly what that choice is. Like, what, what are we saying it is? But here's the thing, right? Can you criticise a character's British accent when that character isn't actually British, but just thinks he's British? Yeah, now this is an interesting question because there are cases, I believe, of people with disassociative personality, uh, identity disorder. Sorry, it's what they... You can't even say it. I can't even say it. So it's kind of, people used to call it multiple personality syndrome, I think. And it's it's now now known as dissociative identity disorder. Exactly, which is slightly more exact, I believe, uh, clinically speaking. But um, people with this do sometimes suddenly start talking in accents which are not their own. And apparently sometimes like quite convincingly, despite never having known anyone of that accent, but presumably other times less convincingly. And I feel like, you know, so he's maybe like playing with reality here. Perhaps I'm giving too much credit and it's just, you know, an odd accent. But I think we are meant to get a sense that something is slightly wrong in the state of Mark from this accent. Yes, because he's not Mark at this point, he's Stevie, and the, and the trailer yes. seems to suggest that he has buried the, the Mark Spector personality. Who's a CIA guy, right? Yeah, he's a mercenary. And, yeah. um, well, he was in the comics, and so whether he is in this, sure. I, don't, I don't know. Uh, he has buried that personality. He is now living as Stevie in England. And then, so that leads to another question. So if people, were, people wrote in to me going, well... Okay, so let's say he doesn't think he thinks he's British, so therefore he thinks his accent is spot on. But would you, as a coworker, if I came in one morning and started speaking like this, you'd go, "What the fuck? <laughs> Where are you from, Chris?" But, but if you'd always spoken like that, maybe we'd be like, "We would just accept it." Yeah, yeah. some people speak weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I mean, not sure like it's us. even necessarily weird. He's just got a slightly sort of nasal. What is it? It's like it's kind of a London accent, isn't it? But I don't it's know just, if it very, is. Someone, you know. Yeah. Is there an element of class to it? I don't know quite where I'd pigeonhole it. I'm not, you know, a linguist or an expert in this. But this is the thing, though. You know, he is making some specific choices mm. about how he attacks certain words. And I think that also makes it stand out a little bit. So as I, as I hinted at in that, oh, it's a humorous introduction, uh, <laughs> he... He he doesn't he can't say his R's, so he says dreams instead of dreams. Um, so I think he's actually really really spot on with a lot of stuff that's going on here with, with his accent. But uh, but again, it's not meant to be a spot on British no. accent. And in fact, he himself poked fun yes. at it in the trailer reaction video, which is yep. a weird concept, <laughs> which was amazing. Basically, they've ripped off our, our trailer talks. Essentially, is what they've done. Uh, <laughs> but I thought, I... That's what they've done. Only yeah. with fewer knob gags. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I loved it. I thought that was really funny. I thought they were both uh, a riot. Yes, so it was him and Ethan Hawke. Marvel put out a uh, a video where he and Ethan Hawke watched the trailer for Moon Knight, and Ethan Hawke is in the trailer reaction video way more than he's actually Much in more. the trailer. For the Moon <laughs> but um, but yeah, and whenever he starts speaking, he in my waking life, he goes, "Please, sir, can I have some more?" Does Oscar Isaac? So he's, I think, he's aware yeah, of it. I think so. 
Yeah, I, th- I think very, very much. So. I think it's all deliberate choices. Yes, I'm kind of intrigued to see where they're going as well with with the Ethan Hawke character, who's in basically one issue, I believe, of the comic. Like he is not a big character, but it seems like they're they're picking him up a little bit. Is that character? Oh, misdirection. Oh, misdirection. John Harrison. John Harrison. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. But yeah, Moon Knight is a very interesting character. Mm. So he's ex CIA turned mercenary. Mm-hmm. Turned, turned gift shop worker. Well, turned, you know, like possessee of the Egyptian god Konshu. But also he's a playboy billionaire and also he's a yes. cabbie. Yes, he is. Yes. He has probably, I haven't read much Moonlight recently, but uh, I, I I remember him having three distinct personalities, mm. one of whom, but, but in the comics, the line was sometimes blurred between how much that was a distinct decision on his part or how much that was something that was uh, embedded in, in him and fractured whenever he was possessed by the Egyptian moon god Khonshu, uh, <laughs> which he, which he is when he goes to, to Egypt and there's a, a bit of business with a, an ancient Egyptian artifact. You know it's basically it Moon Knight at the museum. That's essentially what it is. And <laughs> and so he has one of his, he is a, a billionaire, mm-hmm. playboy, genius, philanthropist. Not uh, so much the philanthropy that we know of. Yes. And that, that leads obviously to comparisons between himself and, and Batman. And mm-hmm. you could say he's Marvel's Batman, but there's a much more overtly supernatural tint to what he does yeah. and the way he goes about his business. And he has powers, for example, which which Batman doesn't, uh, famously. And one of his personalities is a cabbie, so <laughs> a New York cabbie, so he can keep his ear to the ground of what crime is happening in New York um, and also take people to see Hamilton. I think that's basically... <laughs> I think that's it. I think you've nailed it, it yeah. there. That's his job. Yeah. yeah. So whether that cabbie is... In this, whether there is more than three personalities, maybe there's four personalities, five personalities, who knows? But he is a uh, he is a, a, a fractured human being. Yeah, because because the, the original comics, like because I read the first sort of collection of Moon Knight, and back in the day, it was it was almost persona that he was putting on and taking off very consciously and very knowingly. Yeah. It was like, tonight I am dressing up as a cabbie to go out and find information <laughs> about stuff. Tonight I am dressing as a billionaire to go to the fancy party and meet the tonight, fancy people. Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be a cabbie. <laughs> but I think the comics have changed that since and made it less yes. uh, voluntary, frankly, and and more that these are actual individuals, you know, individual personality traits inside his head. And and so I think this is obviously leaning more into that, which does give him a lot more to play with. He also, by the way, of course, has worked or cross paths with Blade quite a bit in the comics. Blade. And apparently Blazer. there's a lot of memes of Blazer. Dracula <laughs> owing him money. Oh, I mean that man, yeah. I know. Notori- I mean, but these these castles As don't Spike said, upkeep Ponsi themselves. Me eight pounds. <laughs> Imagine Dracula owing you money. Hey, Dracula, can you pay me back that money that you owe me? Yes, here it is. One, (laughs) two, three. I think that's a different Uh, uh, count. No, canonically, the count in Sesame Street is Dracula. That is canonical. He might be Dracula. Um, I don't know about (laughs) Dracula. Who's the Draculaist? That's the that's the question (laughs) on everyone's lips. Uh, Yes, remember that really dark episode of Sesame Street where he drained Oscar the Grouch's blood. Yes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good thing this isn't going off Uh, the rails. Anyway, so Moonlight looks for sufficiently and suitably creepy, uh, dark and intense. 
different from what has come before. And uh, I, I am here. Very for much it. look forward to that starting, even if it's only because that means that Boba Fett has ended. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I've said it all in the sport, especially yesterday. But... <laughs> yes. Basic storytelling, though. Come on. <laughs> Anyway, our spoiler specials are now out. <laughs> yes, please pay for them. They're well worthwhile. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a must listen. It's a re- it's a must listen. Uh, if you want to hear Helen say the same thing ten times, <laughs> I, I could not stop. I just I don't understand. They've all made films with stories. They've all done story. Why can't they do story some more? Oh. I don't understand. Men did story good before. Mm. Now men do story bad. Now what men story happened? bad. Mm. Maybe they can't tell the difference between their working <laughs> life and dreams. Anyway, oh, should we have a listener question? <laughs> Why not? Please, We're only 15 please. hours into the podcast. How have we reached 498 episodes of this Farago? Listen, uh, should we briefly update people on episode 500? Oh, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the Reverend Ian Paisley sort of dropped by very briefly there. He's gone now. It's fine. You're right. Carry on. <laughs> oh, I thought those were your scouts. I mean, they, they, the lines blur. The lines blur. The lines blur. Episode 500. It's looking very, very exciting. So the main show is sold out. Episode 500 is sold out. And believe me, folks, when I say that the guests who are going to be on episode 500, um, uh, some of them are actually going to show up, which is really, really good. But uh, it's going to be, it's very, very exciting. We just had someone confirm before this podcast. Uh, there's every chance that they may drop out. But at the moment, as things stand, uh, we will, I will, I won't reveal any names. We never reveal names of guests unless we're really struggling in the ticket sales department. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, or we have them absolutely nailed down. Like in fairness, we have them there have been a couple of times. Yeah. Literally, physically nailed physically, down. Physically, yeah. yeah. In a cage. Like we have them in a yes. dungeon. Yeah, um, a sex dungeon. Uh, so I'm now going to convey the level of this guest to you by Helen and James's reactions without saying the, the guest the guest's name. Squee! Squee! Yes, Squee O'Reilly is going to yeah. be there. It's going yeah. to be very, very exciting. Uh, so do come along for that. Uh, so I think some tickets are still on sale right now for the Great Big Empire Podcast Quiz, which is the thing we're doing in the morning between, well, say early afternoon, 1230 to 2. Never done it before. It's going to be a lot of fun. I haven't even begun to think about that yet, but I promise you it'll be a lot of fun. And then in the afternoon, we're going to be doing... The very best of the Empire podcast live. So we're going to get a three-fact structure, perhaps for the last time. Uh, Helen is very excited about that. She's already working uh. hard on her fact. Uh, <laughs> women versus facts. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Then we're going to have a live episode of The Ranking. Now, we are going to be putting that up for you guys to choose from. Uh, you're going to get a choice of a, a, a ranking about an actor, a director, a franchise, and a year. I don't think we've nailed the director yet, but the actor is likely to be Nicolas Cage. The franchise is likely to be The Muppets. The year is likely to be 1977, the year of Star Wars and Annie Hall and other things like that. And the director is going to be someone, but we're going to nail it down today. And that's also then going to be followed by a live spoiler special. I think I am now in a position or will be in a position by the time this is being edited and put up to tell you that that spoiler special is going to be celebrating the 15th anniversary almost to the day of hot fuzz and as a result we're going to be joined by some very special guests wink wink for big old interview slash celebration slash dissection of 
hot fuzz, to which I say a great big yarp. So if you, I think there's still some tickets for, available for that, but be quick because they will go fast. So go to kingsplace.co.uk, search Empire Podcast, and you can buy tickets to those things. And there may, there may be some tickets returned for the main show, which is from seven o'clock on Saturday, February 5th. Uh, so keep them peeled just in case some tickets do go back on sale. Uh, and streaming passes are now available for the main show, but we are streaming nothing else. Okay, so now we're four hours into the podcast. Let's have a listener question. <laughs> Very excited about this one. This one comes from at Sir Didymus on Twitter. And he asked us, with Scream returning after a 10-year hiatus, which other franchise had finished more than a decade ago would you like to see return with a direct plot continuation and the original cast? All right, so I don't know. Do you guys want to, like, put a cap on this in terms of how many years back we go? 10 years back means we go to 2012 and... Back, so should we do something in the five-year period, twenty twelve to twenty oh seven? Yeah, the problem of going too far back is, you know, you death. get into death. Basically, you get into mm. death. <laughs> and, yeah, yes. the dirty dozen um, is not going to work. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunately not much as we might like it to. Mm. So, um, I think we're aiming for this century anyway, aren't we? Realistically, yeah, yeah, realistically, so we can have legacy people. Yeah. All right. Well. I'm just going to say it on behalf of people younger than me, mm-hmm. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. But like that cast is more exciting than, you know, the Fantastic Beasts cast. And the sort of, we're not quite at 19 years later, but we're getting there. We're getting up there. We're getting so they close. Could, yeah. I mean, aren't we just all waiting for the Cursed Child, for them all to be old enough to do exactly, the Cursed yeah. Child properly? Like That's what we're waiting and for, And it's right? only like, what, nine years off or so at this point? Not even. Eight, I think. So, I, I think every now and again I, about that ending and how depressing the ending is of Harry Potter and how, the, the lack of imagination at play there. What, they get and office jobs? They get office jobs. <laughs> and, and, you know, and they, and, they, and they stay in a relationship with the first person they fall in love with. And Ron is not worthy of Hermione. And... <laughs> Like he's, but Harry's the boy who lived, and he ends up being a fucking middle manager. It's like, what's going on? Maybe that's all he wants. He doesn't want more responsibility. He's saved the oh, world already. Like, what so more do you want? D- they're dowdy and they look miserable, and it's just Voldemort <laughs> wins in the end. Wow. I think. He does a bit. Ultimately, he? he does I, a bit. I have seen the cursed child, or as James said, he uh, he has been possessed by the Egyptian moon god Khonshu. <laughs> the and cursed has the child. The, the cursed child. Harry Potter and the cursed child. Uh, I've seen it. You've seen you've seen it. Hills. Is it pronounced have, cursed yeah. in the play? Do they call it the cursed child? They, I don't think cursed. they say it actually in the play, but yeah. I think it is actually cursed. Cursed has more panache. It does have more panache, that is true. Or panache. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cursed child. But, you know, when you watch the cursed child, mm. you think, all right, yes, this is gonna be this is gonna be the movie in ten years from now, when Daniel Radcliffe yeah. and Emma Watson and the other fella have all aged up and and it's you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be time to come back and have a hoolie. And and set right the wrongs of that dreadful ending. Put right what once went wrong. Yes, yeah. that's a very, very good one. I like that idea. Uh, well done. Well done, Hellspells. <laughs> it's 10 years since the Twilight Saga. Anybody? 
Anybody? It I is. I want to know what happened to them. Do yes, you know what? I'd watch more Twilight. Now that they're both indie darlings. Did I say that out loud? You did. <laughs> <laughs> On tape. Damn it! Um, but now that no. they're both indie darlings, imagine present-day Robert Pattinson and present-day Kristen Stewart. Yeah, Come yeah, on. have much more credibility. Much Hilarious. more credibility. So I'm going to go through here. I'm, I'm going to go through 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, yep. and 11 in excruciating detail. I've got them up oh, on God. boxofficemojo.com. And, and so I'm just going to throw out some potentials. It was B-movie, which would presumably then be C-movie. Z-movie. I mean, I don't think that was really a franchise, what with not having any sequels. See, that's that's a bit harsh for me. I think that's a little bit harsh uh, because then that rules out the answer I give to every single question. Joe Carnahan's The A-Team, which needs a sequel. It needs a sequel right now. They it was need, good. They need to come back. Know. It's tremendous fun, that I movie. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it However, I have stumbled upon the correct answer. There it is. The 25th highest grossing <gasps> film domestically of the year in America in 2007 is Ocean's 13. And we need the gang back together. It's been, how the hell has it been 15 years since yeah. Ocean's 13? Wow. I mean, where is oh, Ocean's wait, wait, 14? Wait, 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 wait. There was Ocean's 8 in the meantime, though. So does that but count? It, it had none of the original cast, apart yeah. from that one but it's very still brief cameo. considered part of the franchise. It is, but... We need the original cast back. Oh, okay. Um, you, your cursor is actually hovering over another correct answer there. Yeah. National well, two, Treasure. <laughs> Book of Secrets. The Declaration of Independence. We have, we have certain members of the Empire Office who would genuinely love a third National Treasure film. Honestly, I would take National Treasure 3 over fucking Uncharted at this stage. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, here for it. Less so for, you know, Fantastic Four 3, Return of the Silver Surfer, or whatever that would have been. Well, no, we'll uh, yeah, a new Fantastic Four will, will be a new Fantastic Four. And we haven't had a new Fantastic Four film in a really long time. There hasn't been one in well over a decade now. <laughs> I so. genuinely forgot that there was one. I was going to say, yes, Helen, it's been 15 years since Rise of the Silver Surfer. And I was going, oh, there was another one. But when did that come out? That was 2015, I think. 15, yeah. Was it? So mm. we're getting very, very close to that being the legacy cast. Oh, Christ. Can you imagine the, the groans in the cinema if, if they turned up at the end of, a, <laughs> of an MCU movie? <laughs> Only if they went full X-Force. I think people then would be on board with that. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say 310 to Yuma. We, we could have had 311 to Yuma, 312 to Yuma, 313 to Yuma. I, I don't think that's how trains work. I, for one, am keen to know when the next train to Yuma was. So You could have had like all kinds of different trains to all kinds of different places, but that, this shows a remarkable lack of, uh, of foresight and uh, planning on Hollywood's That's a good part. film. I like that a lot. It's a good film. It's a good film, yeah. But, All right. You know. I'm going to move on to 2008. Okay. Well, this is going to take us a long time to answer. It- <laughs> no, it's not, because we'll be like Dark Knight. Okay, we're in 2008. Dark Knight's had a sequel. Twilight. Iron Man, Indiana Jones, and the Kingdom of the Crystal. What is that? I've never heard of that. What is that? I don't know what that is. Must be some kind of fan film. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if anyone out there knows what that is, then do write in and let us know. Uh, Sex and the City's had a sequel. Mamma Mia's had a sequel. No one wants to see another Narnia film. <laughs> I do, but done, you know. Do you though? Maybe do not with the original though? cast. Yeah. No, let's move on. Given that they're all like in their late 60s now, I think it wouldn't really work. Uh, wanted, but that wasn't a franchise because they never did a sequel. Yeah. Uh, likewise, Get Smart. The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor is is now the time, given the, the, the resurgence of Brendan Fraser. Mm. Is this now the time to do another Mummy movie? Uh, with no. Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz and John Hanna and Oded Fair and the other one? 
I don't like any of the mummy films. That is my <gasps> that is my that is my confession. I don't like any what? of them. Not not one of them. What? I mean, True. I only like one of them, but I love that one. Like, and it's yeah. Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Helen's that's favorite. the one. I just, what, how, what, I, mm, oh boy, this is Sorry. really dealt a blow oh to our boy. friendship, if I'm honest. Um, wow. Oh how boy. do you not like the mummy? I just, I just, you know. Oh, no. <sighs> I don't know how to deal with this. I've stumbled upon another answer. Okay. Right here. There it is. Number 37. Grossed $75 million in the year of our Lord, 2008. It's Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Oh, and we will good. never get the Guillermo del Toro directed Ron Perlman starring Hellboy 3. That is never going to happen. That is a shame. No. It is a shame. All right, 2009. Transformers, no. Harry Potter, you've talked about. Uh, Twilight Saga, you talked about. Avatar! They should make a sequel to Avatar. Perfectly four. <laughs> <laughs> all at once yeah but also also not be funny star trek like i am desperate for more from that crew which, yeah you know clearly is not gonna happen so mm. i mean they keep talking about it we keep do, getting close but, they keep know. assigning directors and they keep announcing it and then it never happens such a shame it is mm. paul blart there hasn't been a paul blart movie in a long time and i'm saying okay <laughs> we need more blart Sherlock Holmes. Now, has it been 10 years since the second Sherlock Holmes? I know there's been talk of a third for about 10 years. I would say that Sherlock Holmes, uh, yes, let's say that. The Final Destination we talked about last week's coming back. Mm -hmm. Oh, the number 57 Bruno, but we don't talk about Bruno. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Two more years to go. 2010. 2010. So again, Toy Story 3 has had a sequel. Alice in Wonderland has had a sequel slash, was it a prequel? I couldn't really tell. No one could tell. <laughs> no one liked it. Uh, Iron Man 2, Twilight, Inception's never, that's not a franchise, but yeah, that's that's something that could be sequelizable. Um, How to Train Your Dry. Shrek Forever After, that is still the last Shrek movie. I'm okay with that. How, what are your feelings on Shrek? But obviously there's been something of a Shrek lash over the last few years and i just because i don't i don't look upon those films particularly fondly but i seem to recall liking them at the time i think shrek 2 is really funny the other ones all have funny jokes in them Hmm. yeah there's good moments in all of them i don't love the animation style and i find that i find them increasingly annoying as they went and all of them including the shorts basically have the same thing which is where shrek just wants to be alone and then he realizes that he quite likes other people and they're good to have around and that got a bit worrisome. I didn't feel mm. like there was any actual character arc there. So I realise I'm out of step with, you know, the world, but I've never been a big Shrek fan. But it's not often that Hollywood leaves money on the table. And there's a sense, like, Shrek's still a big deal. There's still a Shrek exhibition, or there was, I don't know, it might have closed because of the pandemic, but there was a, that Shrek exhibition down at the County Hall here there in was, London. Yeah. It may still be there. So, you know, they're just Shrek rides and Universal Studios, so it's still a license to print money. So it's fascinating that they haven't got that cast back. Maybe it's difficult. You know, Cameron Diaz is apparently retired from acting. Uh, Mike Myers isn't doing much these days either. Eddie mm. Murphy's back with a with a vengeance. I don't know. Maybe they can get the, the gang back together again. There's, there's one here that I'm seeing, uh, which is a film I really, really like. Um, is Predators. And yes, I know that there have been Predator sequels since, and I know there's <sighs> another one on the way. It's yeah. a prequel, in fact. But we've never had Arnold back 
It would no, be difficult to get the rest of the cast of the original Predator back, given that they were scattered to the four winds, uh, not least by the Predator, but also by the small thermonuclear device he set off at the end of that Indeed, movie. Yes. But we could get Arnold back. We could get Apilia Carrillo back. Shouldn't, couldn't we? Yeah. Well, Arnold recorded new dialogue for the Predator video game, so he's clearly not averse to uh, you know, getting his Dutch on. I mean, that might be a little bit easier than making an entire film as the character, but sure. Yeah, I'd be. I look, I always like Predator. Well, I love the original Predator. Yeah. yeah. I don't always like Predator. Predators has has some things to recommend it. Like it's it's enjoyably not great. <laughs> yeah. I I listen, I I think that film's a blast. I really do. I'm glad that the mooted cameo by Dutch in that movie didn't pan out because yeah. it wouldn't have panned out well for Dutch. Bring Arnold back and have him kick some Predator ass. That's why I say last year. Last year is 2011 because uh, we're only we're only just into 2022. So we're not going to go back to 2012 just yet. Uh, but 2011. Do you see anything there, folks, that you would like to see again? Any kind of any sequels that could be made for films with with the original cast coming back? Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows. Look at that, Helen. There you go. Yeah. See, within the it's within the cutoff. I'm not sure, but that wouldn't really work as a legacy character because he's not actually going to hand over to anyone, is he? So, you know, it doesn't quite fit what we're doing. Mm, Planet of the Apes, I really love, but I think because it, it sees a story, it works perfectly as a kind of trilogy. I don't know that I'd want to see more of that at this stage. Yeah. It's tricky because a couple of these things were, you know, were sequelized themselves. Uh, there's talk this week of Real Steel becoming a, which is which came out in 2011, of Real Steel becoming a Disney Plus show. I don't know whether that would be with Hugh Jackman or just with, you know, another actor. The way that they did yeah. the Turner and Hood show and replaced Tom Hanks with Man with Face, uh, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Big fan of Man with Face, but uh, yeah. yeah, the Muppets is there. The Muppets is there. The Muppets had a, a fairly risible sequel, uh, which came out soon afterwards, Muppets Most Wanted. So they're there. They are absolutely there. And again, something I'm going to bang on about, I mention this all the time in this show, is, is a film that should have been a franchise. Why we only have one Lincoln Lawyer movie yeah. is completely and utterly beyond me. Uh, and I know that we're, we've got Mickey Haller. He's going to be on the small screen very, very soon yep. in his own show. Yep, yep. But we should honestly have been looking at four or five Matthew McConaughey, Mickey Haller, Lincoln Lawyer movies by now. And I point the finger of blame firmly in Helen's direction. <laughs> what did I have to do with it? I even knew you were going to say that. I was all like here, nodding you, throughout. You, yeah, because you're guilty. You're guilty. That's why you knew I was going to say it. You're guilty. I, I, guilty. Again. Guilty. guilty of what? Hmm. And Tron as well, Tron, like Tron Legacy like had potential, it didn't really work, but like there's still potential in that world. So But hang could, on, the legacy character at this point, is that still going to be Jeff Bridges or is it now going to be the you know man your, with a face? Your man with a face. <laughs> yeah. Gar- Garrett Headland. I want to <laughs> say Garrett Headland. That's him. Yeah. He has a face. <laughs> he does have a face. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paul was that year as well. So we we still need, you know. John, Ringo, and George. So, hey. so, so. <laughs> three sequels to that one. Final Destination 5 is on this list. Uh, it came out the same year as Scream 4. I kind of wonder, we talked last week about how John Watts is... Uh, has, <laughs> John Watts is using all that Spider-Man No Way Home cachet, and he's going, right, bring back Final Destination, which is exactly the right thing to do with, <laughs> with, with the power you accrue in Hollywood. Uh, but maybe he did exactly the same thing. He went, right, what came out 10 years ago and didn't have a sequel? And he looked through this list. <laughs> The fact that he went past a Lincoln lawyer is to his shame and to his eternal detriment, but I'll let it go for this this one time. Also, kind of technically a franchise given the books and the cartoons, mm-hmm. The Adventures of Tintin. 
We never got the Peter Jackson one we were promised. Oh, that's right. It was supposed to be two, wasn't it? Mm. We were getting two of those films. And uh, initially got three. And was then, it three? And then they, they pushed it back to two. And, and then they pushed it back to no one. one's ever mentioned again. Yes. Unless, you know, Peter Jackson is meant to direct the next one. It's entirely possible that he has been making it in secret for years. Entirely and possible. suddenly next year you'll have another Tintin movie. Made $373 million worldwide that year, which is... Absolutely the kind of money that would get a sequel green lit. Yeah, um, it's weird. Except it? that it probably cost about three hundred. Probably cost three hundred seventy million well, yeah. as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, those those Thompson twins, they have big riders. Uh and the last one I'm gonna suggest is We Bought a Sue, because again, you could have had just a number of great sequels. You know, we bought a hospital, you know, we bought a house, we bought a cinema, and then leading up to the the tear jerking final instalment of the franchise, we bought the farm. <laughs> wow. I always thought I always thought Rampage was the unofficial trailer uh, sequel to this. Uh, we fought a zoo, as someone pointed out <laughs> at the time. So uh, I think that worked out quite well. Oh my god, a very Harold and Kumar Christmas was 2011. Where's oh Harold and Kumar 4? Yes, all do right. this. Souls. This has there all been building to this. It's all been building to Harold and Kumar 4. And uh, on that note, we're going to bring this very, very exciting episode of Chris, <laughs> Helen and James list films <laughs> to an end. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, next week's 499. <laughs> it is. It is. Get me in the Batman. Why uh, are you making what? that noise? That was terrifying. Oh, God. It sounded like I was having a wank. Yes. Because yeah. so he can't separate his waking life from dreams. That's the problem. I can't separate my wanking life. Oh God! From wet dreams. That's that's no. (laughs) Anyway, if you want to uh, have your question read out in the Empire Podcast on next week's 499th show, get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Slide into my DMs or reply to any of my tweets or wait for a panicked shout out. But this is that panicked shout out right now. So there you go. Go forth, send in questions, and then we'll be doing a big old Q and A section uh, live in episode 500. Right, guest? Yes, please. Thank God. Guillermo or Jamie Dornan? Let's go with Guillermo. Guillermo. Guillermo del Toro. So, very excited about this. Uh, This happened last night, uh, in fact. Uh, I spoke to Guillermo del Toro about Nightmare Alley, which has been out in the States for a couple of weeks uh, and is now being re-released this weekend in the States in black and white, which is very exciting. I haven't seen the black and white version yet. I think this is his best movie since Pan's Labyrinth. We'll talk about it later on in the reviews section of the show. I think it's an absolutely wonderful movie. It's been released here this weekend in the UK and it's absolutely well worth your time. Uh, I always have a blast talking with Guillermo and this is a once again a fascinating interview he's a wonderful wonderful guy uh very very smart as of course as you know this isn't a spoiler special interview although in the course of in the course of the conversation he does talk about just casually organically he talks about things that happened in the movie including the very end of the film so uh i'm not sure i'm going to be able to cut that stuff out so i would advise you to only listen to this once you have seen nightmare alley unless you want to be spoiled. So there we go. Here we are, me talking to Guillermo del Toro. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the one and only Guillermo del Toro, director of Nightmare Alley. How the devil are you, sir? Very good, man. Very happy. Excellent, excellent. Because the film's been out now in the States a couple of weeks uh, for you. Yeah, we're actually actually launching... uh, uh, my alternative version in black and white, which I fought very hard to get. So, and uh, 
the beauty of the experience is uh, the launch of the film and general release was uh, timed to be released in the worst possible weekend in the history of the medium. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, now that uh, Omicron is growing is slightly quieter, uh, the release in black and white, which we're platforming, is uh, giving me the chance to uh, go to the cinema with large audiences and watch the movie and talk about it. So you know, it's a it's a good moment. And 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 by the way, the main thing is the black and white uh, creates a, an almost entirely different experience of the film. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really nice to see people that saw it in color, seeing it in black and white, or going the other way around. I've only seen it in color. I haven't seen it in black and white yet. I'm fascinated to see it in black and white. Uh, what was the process like for designing it? Did you design the film with Dan Lauston and with your production designer with a few to people watching it in color and also watching it in black and white? It was a very lonely decision. And it was, it was something I started on the pandemic. When we had the six-month hiatus, I started watching uh, because we, we, we had our directed it very much with colors that were friendly to the midtones. And Dan and I had talked about lighting it like a black and white movie in color, meaning deep mm. shadows, very expressionist patterns, uh, three-point uh, lighting system, old-fashioned old studio lighting system. So the, the, the light, the contrast ratio was very friendly to black and white already. Mm. And the layer of color, uh, which used uh, greens and reds and golds, was very friendly to the midtones, mm -hmm. so it was. I started watching it during the pandemic, the cut in black and white, and I started watching dailies after that in black and white every day, and and I felt that if I was bold and I approached it at the right time, the studio would actually take a look and see that is incredibly gorgeous in black and white, and fortunately for me, that that came to be true. They allowed me to release both versions. Did you think at all at any point about, because I know Frank Darabont with The Mist uh, had fantasies about releasing that as black and white, first of all, and then got shot yes. down by Dimension at the time. But did you have fantasies about doing that with, with Nightmare Alley at all? Or was yes. It yes, of course. I, yeah. I started showing it to first to my wife, Kim, and then showing it to Bradley. And I started saying, uh, what if we release it first in black and white? And, and uh, it was... You know, I think the color is so gorgeous and so expressive in the movie that it has a different value, but an equal potent uh, movie. Mm -hmm. In a strange way, the movie in black and white has a more gritty moral weight, if you can imagine that. <laughs> it's a lot more gritty and a lot more uh, sort of has a, a sense of doom that is even deeper. Yeah. But the, but the black and white, uh, the color was the first incarnation because I thought that the seduction of this dreamlike uh, audiovisual world w uh, had to be the yin to the yang of the darkness of the story. Mm -hmm. But so you have a much more um, cohesive darkness in the black and white, and you have a much more complete experience in a way in the color. 
you, you said doom there, and and that's a very interesting word. And and uh, certainly the last time we spoke for the magazine, I told you that I have felt when I saw the movie, I felt a sense of suffocating doom that I yes. don't recall feeling with a movie for a long, long time. Uh, and some people listening to this may think, oh, that means everyone dies in the end. It's 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 not that. We're not talking spoilers in that. We're talking no, about the no, general no. mood of the movie and the journey that 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 Stanton, the, the lead character, goes mm-hmm. on. Um, how much of that was reflected in your worldview at the time you began to work on this movie? Yeah. That, that sense of doom, because you know, looking from the outside, looking in, you just come off the Oscars, king yeah. of the world, top of the world, made it man, top of the world. And now you make this movie that is filled with darkness and doom yeah, and despair. I think, I think that, I, think that uh, I can allow myself to to be guided by my perception of the world that doesn't necessarily have to be guided by the anecdotal uh, moment mm-hmm. in my life. I mean, I'm the happiest I've ever been, but as a citizen of the planet, I have never been as uh, anxious yeah. and as full of dread as I am today. I think that uh, there are basic tenets of communication breaking down. Uh, there's a very tenuous grasp of truth and lies. There's populist uh, discourse rising in the politics. There is, uh, there is so much uh, an eschatological sense <laughs> of doom. You know, there is um, really, uh, I think, is a dire moment uh, ontologically, but individually, I, yeah, I'm very happy. Uh, it's it, it, the, the, my duty to the narrative is both uh, to tackle what I feel uh, I need to communicate or experience. Uh, through the movie, and uh, and it it is definitely a moment about today, a movie about today. And again, we've we talked about this in the past, but this is uh, this is uh, a novel that you had toyed with in the past when when you and yeah. Ron Perlman were working together in Kronos. He had suggested making Nightmare Alley into a movie, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm still fascinated by that in a way. The idea of how different that movie would have been. 29, 30-year-old oh, yeah. Guillermo del Toro making oh, yes. Nightmare well, it would have been. Look, I, I, it would have been, there is a difference in style that is a different in content on substance because style is substance. Mm-hmm. And I would, it would have been more of a pageantry. Uh, it would have been more concerned with the, the sort of Todd Browning aspects of it all. Uh, and, and this actually has, to me, uh, a a distillation of the tools that I have as a director Mm -hmm. that has uh, a lot more um, the capacity to withhold some of the whimsy, Mm -hmm. if you would, Mm -hmm. that I would have dispensed abundantly back then. Because the creation of both worlds is exquisite and is visually arresting, but they are in enough a measure of control that they don't upset the darkness mm-hmm. on the tail. Mm-hmm. And I think um, is, is a movie in which I definitely am not getting high on my own supply, which is mostly the case in all my movies. Uh-huh. I get high on my own supply. I, I, I definitely partake of the fascination with the worlds I create. And here I have a, a very healthy distance and I use the most beautiful sets uh, for the most dreadful 
uh, moments in the movie. You know, the city is not a, it's a beautiful place, but it's a ruthless place. Yeah. And the yeah. carnival, it's a, a place of uh, honest dishonesty. You know, it's, it's not an idealized carnival where everybody uh, sings uh, hallelujah. It's a carnival where people know that uh, it's a grift or, or worse, there's exploitation of a fragile uh, character like the geek, mm. which happens, by the way, with the agreement of everyone in the carnival to a point. Everyone's complicit in, in some way. In a, in a way, yeah. And I think uh, the, even the moral line that is drawn, uh, it, it, it happens gradually. I think the, that we track that moral line with Molly, and when Molly says, this is it, I've had enough, uh, is really refreshing for me. It's a really beautiful moment for Rooney Mara and a beautiful monologue where she says, you remember the old act, the electric act? Uh, how did I know I had enough? Uh, you know, it's really one of my favorite moments in the movie, and it's a quiet moment. I just wanted to go back a little bit to the creative process and how you you sit down with, with Kim and you start writing this movie. Um, because all your movies are so wonderfully, meticulously designed, at what point do images start popping into your head? What, what was the first image of Nightmare Alley, for, for example, for you? When I'm writing, to me, it was him with the bandage with the eye. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the first. And then probably shortly thereafter, the burning cabin. Okay. And him walking away. And then probably the third image was the baby with the cyclopean eye. Yeah. yeah. Those are the three fundamental images of the film to me. And uh, are you sketching these in your in, in your notebooks or yeah, these? They, they were, yeah. They were, the, yeah, that's what happens. The, the crucial images get sketched and then notions come in. The notion of the circular images, the circles, the eyes, the circular nature of the film. Those th are things that come early. And then Kim and I started the, the deciding that we needed to give him three fathers and three women, uh, sort of create this symmetry, because we thought um, that William Lindsay Gresham basically wrote an autobiographical Jungian uh, dialogue with himself and the parts of himself that were feminine, masculine, dark, uh, light. Mm -hmm. It was a really interesting, his novel is a session of psychoanalysis. <laughs> Really, I was looking at my notes earlier on from our our last interview, and I had simply written down Bradley's eyes, and I don't mm. really know what I meant by that, except I think that there's something about his eyes that uh, that really reflects so many different things. You know, they they can reflect yeah. panic, fear, doom. Yes. There's a watery yes. na nature to them, I think, which is very useful for a it's director. True. It's true. I look. I've said in the past several times that I cast eyes. Because I think the, the main instrument of cinema is the eyes of the actors. Mm -hmm. And the greatest act of cinema is looking. The actors looking at each other, the audience looking at the actors. That's the real uh, sacrament of cinema. And, and, and uh, the more complex the eyes or the more pure the eyes in, in their way of looking, mm -hmm. the strongest the tale becomes. And Bradley... Uh, Kim is the one that said it first. There is innocence, intensity, intelligence, madness. There's all these colors in Bradley's eyes that are incredibly compelling. And, and sometimes there are the eyes of a child, and sometimes there are the eyes of a madman, mm -hmm. you know? 
and mm-hmm. and 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 we thought that that's what is needed with Stan. Bradley's the most chameleon-like actor I've ever worked with. He quite literally can show you a stand that looks like a 20-year-old kid, uh, enthusiastic and full of life, uh, a very savvy seductor, uh, a very uh, sophisticated uh, huckster, mm-hmm. or a very lonely and sad and broken man. I mean, the, the mapping of that character in this movie, the wisdom of him invoking all those uh, states, it's almost like solid, gaseous, and liquid. <laughs> he has to invoke every every state of the of that character over and over again. I've never been as fascinated or as complicit with an actor as I, as I was with Bradley. And I I must say, to me, this is a career best performance. There's something about what you said there, the the, the collaboration, the partnership that you guys uh, struck mm-hmm. up on this movie. Going back to the first. Your, the, the partnership has endured all the way through your career with Ron Perlman, yeah. which in yeah. a way introduced you to Nightmare Alley. That's mm-hmm. interesting. At what point, you're always a very loyal guy, you work with the same people again and again and again. At what point do you know when you've clicked with someone, be it an actor or be it someone behind the scenes? No, an actor and a director don't know each other until the first day of shooting because we both change. You can go socially... You can climb the Himalayas with an actor and, and give, the actor can give you CPR and bring you down to the town. You can raise the actor's children for two years. <laughs> you can become a mentor. And on the first day of shoot, we both change. Yeah. So the first day of shoot, you know. And, uh, and you, you can know if it's going to be... There, there's many, many side guys, sort of a gestalt uh, uh, sort of trans, uh, transference that happens mm-hmm. between directors and actors, and the best uh, incarnation of it is the deep partnership, and that 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 is rare, but it does happen, and it happened in this movie, and uh, is when you when you are listened, and when you listen on a day to day basis. What does that mean? Are you are you having on a day to day basis? Is that you you come in and you have in your gut and in your attitude the certainty that uh, you will discover something new that day, that everything you planned so meticulously may get a boost Mm -hmm. by uh, a detail, a line, an attitude, a change of set that will make it better. And it's, it's almost like every morning is Christmas. But a very scary Christmas because you <laughs> you have to be able to you open the gift, and but you have a hundred and thirty people looking at you to determine exactly the way you're gonna do that. And and uh, you know you you start your day a couple of hours before anyone in the crew, and you can be storyboarding privately, having coffee with the the star. Uh, where you can have a, a you, for example, Bradley and I can be on the set an hour before and walk it, mm-hmm. or I can be with Dan Lauston uh, three hours before and say, what if we make this night? That's the type of discovery. Interesting. And, uh, and with regard to that as well, when you're, when you're having conversations with Bradley, when you're watching him play Stan on screen, there must be moments, I guess maybe all the time, but there must be moments when he surprises you, when he does oh, something yeah. that you didn't expect or didn't even think of during the writing? Uh, 
I, I can tell you, and this, and this I will say three years from now, 10 years from now, the level of reality, the level of reality that I saw in front of the camera from, particularly from him, because he was in front of the lens 99% of the time. Uh, so I, uh, no other actor in the movie is uh, as prota the protagonist in that way. We literally follow Stan into every play. And the level of reality he brings to existing in front of the lens is remarkable. And that can evidence itself with a little gesture. And for example, I'll tell you, I would frame and hang in my living room the shot where he tastes alcohol for the first time when Lilith kisses him with the alcohol in her lips. Yeah. The, yeah. the way he experienced this almost ecstatic dizziness, abandoned, the way his jaw and his physicality of tasting the alcohol behaved is remarkable to me. The final shot of the movie, uh, where he needs to land uh, a giant plane in a narrow runway, where he has to land it uh, and see complete destruction, complete existential uh, abandonment, relief, elation, and madness. <laughs> it's like the whole menu has to happen in the space of a few seconds yeah. with yeah. nothing but the camera looking at him. There is no other subterfuge. There is no score. There's no sound design. There's not a beautiful set. It's just a lens and an actor. That moment is so fantastic. And the way he experienced everything. Uh, I mean, we could talk about that character and how much love I have for this movie and that character because uh, he's tragic. Is the tragedy that we don't see in ourselves. You see, uh, when I see uh, quote-unquote winners in the real world, when that behave like winners, you know, not the not, not, an athlete winning gold, that doesn't strike me just as a winner attitude. It's, it's the people that, that flaunt. When I see people flaunting the win, I feel a tinge of sadness. And I feel a a lot of empathy, and I feel the loneliness, the necessity that is behind that gesture. And I, I see Stan like that. Stan is a, a broken a broken guy. How many um how many takes did he take to to land that plane? It it actually is the first complete take, uh, and it, 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 we shot it when we were not prepared to shoot it. By the way, which is a terrifying tale. We we. We had talked about shooting that shot as many times as we needed. We were going to saw off that set, shoot Timbling Nelson out, and we thought maybe we'll repeat it 20 times in 20, 20 different days. We'll pay for Saturdays. We were so afraid of that shot. And then out of the blue, one morning, Miles Dale, our producing partner, came to him and I because we were the three of us were producing the movie, and, and Miles said, we have two options. Either we shoot the ending today, which nobody's prepared for, or we lose the day. And uh, I looked at Bradley, and Bradley says, what can we lose? You know, <laughs> let's do it. You know, if we're going to do it more than once, let's do it. So he went and changed clothes, makeup, everything. He came in, and we rehearsed. I think we did two, two takes for the camera uh, measurements and all this, and almost rehearsal takes. And I think this is... It's either the first formal take or the certainly the first complete take 
And at the end of it, we said, we got it. And then we did two more, <laughs> which were not, uh, not uh, alive. Uh, we, we both looked at each other and said, that was, that was it, wasn't it? Him and I were crying at the end of that take because we, we happened to, to have great empathy for the monster that is a Stan. And, and I saw him go to every place he needed to go in that shot, and we, we almost chest bump, and then we said, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And also, Bradley's crying with relief because he's realized he's not working with David Fincher, so he doesn't have to do it 94 more times. <laughs> he, he, he <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, the the beauty of working like that is uh, we were like Daddy DeVito and Schwarzenegger. We were twins. We didn't look alike, but we became twins in the course of shooting this movie. <laughs> now that is a movie I cannot wait to see. Guillermo, my friend, I'm going to let you go. But as always, a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Take care. Okay, so that was Guillermo del Toro. We will be talking about Nightmare Alley later in the show. But now it is time to talk about movie news. We've got the Moon Knight trailer out of the way that is done that's in the can anything else well yeah i mean we've got robert pattinson in talks to star in bong joon ho's next film which is instantly exciting um so this is obviously his follow-up to parasite um he's apparently in talks to adapt the upcoming novel mickey seven which sounds without wanting to get too into spoilers for the film i'm about to name but tough it sounds a bit like moon um, so it it's written by mm. a guy called Edward Ashton, and it's um, it follows a, a character called Mickey Seven, who is known as an expendable, not the action hero type, exactly. Um, so he's essentially a disposable employee who's sent to the, help colonize this ice world, this ice planet called Niflheim. Um, so anything Named after that's, the plane in Norse mythology. Exactly. So anything that's too dangerous or even suicidal, they, the crew basically sends Mickey. And he tries to do it. And if he dies in the attempt, no big deal. We've got another Mickey right there waiting to wake up until Mickey begins to, I think, rebel, basically. So this sounds really intriguing. I'm going to say, if they don't have Tony Basil singing the theme tune to this film, they've missed a trick. Who's Tony Basil? Hey, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so oh. fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> So we do have a slight delay on the line. I see. Um, yeah, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this. It sounds a little bit, you know, snowpiercery, but um, it also has a lot of potential for the kind of commentary that Bong Joon Ho gets into all his films, um, as well as making them amazing, freaking films yeah. to watch. So yeah. super up for it. Anyway, what else? What else is happening in the world of the films? Oh, can we talk about the weird news? With the weird Al news. The weird Al news. Oh that my god! Daniel Radcliffe is going to be yeah. playing Weird Al Yakovich in a biopic basically about himself so um yeah i'm i'm super super duper here for this it just sounds hilarious it's due to start shooting soon it's coming from um ed uh, sorry it's coming from eric apple who um cut his teeth on funny or die and he co-wrote the film with yankovic so i just i just sounds barmy i, I assume it's in line with everything else that radcliffe has been doing recently which has all been essentially barmy 
hundred percent. I I I I love Daniel Radcliffe, and I love the fact that he just has this zero fucks given approach to all of his projects. Where because he just sleeps on a mattress stuffed with Potter millions, he can just do whatever <laughs> the fuck he wants and not give a shit. He lives and in the fault of Gringotts, mass- doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I massively respect that. I really do. He's like, what kind of crazy ass shit can I do now? A farting corpse, you say? I'm in. Uh, I love him. I love him to bits. Yes, indeed. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic, I think I've said this in the podcast before, is someone I don't get. I do not get Weird Al Yankovic. So oh, I mean, he's I'm, weird. That's that's kind of I'm, in the name. I, yes, I get that. I get that, James. But I don't, and I, this is obviously strange coming from me, and I have very broad comedic tastes. I don't find him funny. And but in America he is hailed as a mm. god. Like you get so many American comedians who will like just worship at his feet, and I don't get it at all. Some of his lyrics are really clever. Like his rewrites of existing songs are really funny sometimes. I, mean, I, I don't look. I can't say say I'm a huge um, huge expert on his work, but every song of his that I've heard has been has been pretty funny. I mean that that warrants a biopic in itself, obviously. But I, <laughs> I but think I'm there's more to it. Yeah. This is why I'm keen to see this movie because this might, the scales might finally fall off my eyes vis-a-vis Weird Al Yankovic. There we go. Good old Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Jacob Radcliffe was born on July twenty third, nineteen eighty nine, in Fulham, London, England, to casting agent Marcia Gresham Nee Jacobson and literary agent Alan Radcliffe from Banbridge which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, I got really excited when I saw that John Cena and Alison Brie were going to be in an action comedy called Freelance, which I thought was going to be about chasing up unpaid invoices and, and all the other <laughs> exciting and death-defying <laughs> tasks of a freelancer's day. But it turns out she's just going to be a journalist who's interviewing a dictator and he's just the bodyguard who goes to you know bodyguard her while she does it. And then a coup breaks out and they all have to escape into the jungle. So that doesn't sound quite so fun at all. It's good. If you're going to hide, the jungle is a great place to hide, Helen, because jungle is massive. Oh, no. Oh, boy. Oh, no. There is a wrinkle. There is a twist to this, which I think makes this more than just your standard Romance in the Stone riff. Mm-hmm. And that is this week they added Juan Pablo Raba to the cast as the dictator. Mm-hmm. And the twist is that whenever the military coup breaks out, that it's not just John Cena and Alison Pree oh, yeah. who have to escape into the jungle to fend for themselves, but the dictator comes with them as well. So mm-hmm. it's the three of them together, and John Cena has beef with the dictator from something that happened in their past. So that already refreshes the dynamic. Oh, yeah, sure. That's not what I'm complaining about. I'm what super here about? for the di- dynamic. I'm, I'm complaining they're not making a film about freelancers like me. I mean, that doesn't sound in. I mean, it sounds terrible. Oh, okay. But like Spotlight can win an Oscar. Fine. <laughs> I, I'd watch a 90-minute film about someone doing their tax self-assessment. I'm sure it would be, it'd be thrilling. Yeah, that would be that would be absolutely tremendous. Can I say something I'm, I'm hugely excited about? I've only just learned about this. <laughs> if you must. Okay. And I suspect I may be the only person on this podcast, or indeed in the world, to share this, oh, this excitement. Oh, but boy. Denzel Washington has confirmed that his next movie is The Equalizer 3. Oh, yes! Enough faffing around with Macbeth. Has he really? This isn't just some weird dream you've had and you've woken up, and again, not being able to distinguish reality from dreams. Uh, I can't separate my wakey life 
from my dreams of Denzel Washington doing Equalizer 3. Equalizer 1 is actually good. Like, I enjoyed it, even though it's not as good as John Wick, despite what you said at the time. But uh, Equalizer, Equalizer 2, 2 is not good. Is it's just every bit not as good on good every conceivable level. At all. Despite featuring a hurricane and Pedro Pascal, it is not good. This is where you're very incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> And I am very excited about it. So apparently, uh, Denzel, in an interview he did last week, confirmed confirmed to Collider. Did you check his watch first? <laughs> he confirmed that his next movie is going to be the Equalizer Three. That a script has been completed, and he is going to make that next with Antoine Fuqua, which is tremendous. I'm very excited about this. Denzel had never made a sequel until The Equalizer 2, and he decided to make the best sequel of all time. Uh, so, Oh! Oh, Evil Dead too much? Uh, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Evil Dead 2 knows I'm only joking. Uh, but Equalizer 2 has the line, and I've said this before, but it has the line where he has he has, he has has Pedro Pascal and his, his gang of wrongins in front of him, and Robert McCall says, what you do, what you become is not my concern. The world is full of so-called men like you, and in a perfect world, everything we do comes with a price, but this ain't a perfect world. People do bad things. If you're lucky, you get a chance to set it right but most of the time it goes unpunished this ain't one of them times the mistake you made was you killed my friend so and this is the line i'm gonna kill each and every one of you and the only disappointment in it for me is that i only get to do it once yes Denzel! yes i mean i feel like any of them could, have, could and should have shot him during that monologue yeah i mean they had time uh, they, they did have time good luck trying to shoot robert mccall we can all agree that the best equaliser is Queen Latifah. No, we can all agree <laughs> that the best equaliser is Xavi Alonso in the Champions League final 2005 to make it oh, AC Milan 3, Liverpool shush. 3. Shush. I can personally agree I don't care about any equalizers at all, I don't think. Except social equality. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely cushion header for social equality! <laughs> We talk frequently, maybe not necessarily on this podcast, but we talk frequently about Timothy Olyphant and his incredible hair. Mm. And I know this hair. is a TV story, but uh, if you will indulge yes. me for a second, uh, he is coming back as Raylan Givens yes. in a limited edition Justified sequel called Justified City Primeval, uh, based, of course, on an Elmore Leonard book. Very exciting news. I love it. I really enjoyed Justified. I watched it all the way through. It was great. I'm I'm thrilled to see Raylan Givens and his excellent hat, which admittedly does hide his excellent hair. This is the problem. Uh, coming back for a film. Yeah. It's a Faustian pact. On one hand, you get a great hat. On the other hand, it covers great hair. Like, <laughs> yeah. ooh, it's yeah. tough. <laughs> but yeah, it's, he's a... He's a very, very good character, Raylan, yes. so fingers crossed. And we're going to get, so in, ter- in terms of spin-off-y things, we're also the Ray Donovan movie, I think it's aired in the States, it should be coming to the UK soon as well. Sticking with TV, they have announced the name of the Lord of the Rings TV show, haven't they? In rather ostentatious Finally. fashion. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings Electric Boogaloo. Was yes. unexpected? Yes. But there we have it. Lord of the Rings No Way Home uh, is <laughs> coming out very, very soon. No, it's going to be called The Lord of the Rings the Rings of Power, and they announced it with a title treatment that, that looked like it was CG, but it turned it out then they, they had forged it in a foundry, the actual yeah. thing, because Jeff Bezos obviously can afford that kind of thing. <laughs> and there was a picture of Jeff Bezos holding Lee, the title treatment, and, and grinning at it. 
I would hope so, since it's cost him like over half a billion dollars. Like he even notices that money's yeah, gone. That's true. Yeah. That yeah. is actually true. That's pocket change for him. Uh, yeah, I, I must admit, this teaser trailer got me in the you know the music, the intoning of the you know the wandering for the elves and the dwarves and stuff. Like it felt, which is obviously what they tried to do. They're trying to anchor this onto Lord of the Rings and not you know the Hobbit, um, which I think is a smart move. But it is also just a typeface even if it is a beautifully forged one and also the repetition of the word rings in the kind of head and the secondary head bothers me a little bit just from a writing yeah look i mean i can't talk as the author of women versus hollywood call on the fallen rise of women in film um but <laughs> they're very close together rings and rings are, so that, it's it's mm. not ideal but at the it same time me. you know this is exciting because it does tell us a little bit about when the show is set and what we can therefore expect from it it is about the rings of power being forged and handed out to men and elves and dwarves. It is about the struggle for control of those rings. It is going to presumably feature Sauron as a character and not just a big eye in the sky. Um, it puts definitely Galadriel and Elrond and people on the table. It means you do have to read the Silmarillion, guys. I'm sorry, but you do. You don't oh, have God. to read the Silmarillion. I mean, nobody, okay, nobody should ever have to read the Silmarillion. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you want to have one up on your friends... Silmarillion. But if you want to feel intensely miserable and have an awful reading experience. It gets better. Like the first chapter, I'm not kidding, is that was tough for me. But once I got through that, everything else got easier. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It took me a few years. It took me a few years to get through that, admittedly. Mm, yes. Basically okay. just go on holiday, don't bring any other books, and you'll be fine. You'll be just sure read in the no Wikipedia time. entry. The Wikipedia entry for the Silmarillion <laughs> is much more readable than the Silmarillion. Just read that instead. Uh, but this is exciting. And so that is, we think, Morford Clark as young Galadriel uh, in doing the voiceover for this. And I I loved, and I know it's the canonical pronunciation of Mordor, but she goes Mordor and it just made me laugh. Yeah. Well, she's a Welsh speaker, isn't she? So she can, Mordor. She can really get her uh, tongue into the R's, as it were. So yeah, it's happening. It's I was happening. hoping for a kind of uh, a knockabout crime caper, Mordor she wrote, and it would be like, you know, <laughs> she'd just go around solving do, do, crimes. Do, 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 yeah, do, do, exactly do, that. Do, do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in other exciting prequel slash sequel news, Michael Mann is making a sequel mm. to Heat. What? Well, but well, not in the of. conventional classic style. He's not making yes. a, a movie sequel to Heat. He has co-written a book. A with book. Meg, a book, a book, a book. Uh, with Meg Gardner, which will be out later this year. It is called rather unimaginatively, I would say, Heat Two, and it is going to be Godfather Two esque. It's going to be both a prequel and a sequel. So we're going to get flashbacks to nineteen eighty nine, and uh, which we will pick up with our old favorites, Neil Macaulay. Chris Shaherlis, of course, the Falcoma character, and Vincent Hanna, the Al Pacino character. Neil Macaulay, of course, being Robert De Niro. And then we're going to flash forward to 2002 and pick up with the characters who survived Heat. No spoilers from me. Uh, so this is going to be exciting. And presumably, because we're in a fucking ludicrous state of affairs where Michael Mann doesn't seem to be able to get a film made these days, despite being one of the greatest directors of all time, this may be some sort of proof Toe of concept. Mm. Yeah. Like, here's a book. 
and maybe I will make it down the down the line as a film if you want to give me the cash. Uh, he presumably have to recast because two thousand and two. Val Kilmer obviously has his his health issues these days. Uh, Al Pacino would imagine I'd imagine be too old, but you could recast those characters and and have a uh, a lot of fun with that. So very intrigued to see what Heat Two reheated uh, turns out huh. to be like. And I will uh, use this opportunity then to tell you once again your regular reminder that Heat did not receive a single Oscar nomination. Let that sink in for a second. And we should also cover the very sad news this week, which was that Gaspar Ulliel, um, who is a big French star, um, passed away very suddenly after a skiing accident, um, basically uh, had a bad injury to the head and died the following day after being airlifted to a hospital. He's been a major, major star in France for a long time. Not all of his films have crossed over, but things like The, the Princess of Montpensier, uh, Saint Laurent, It's Only the End of the World. Um, he was in Hannibal Rising. Um, it wasn't his fault. Um, he was in a very long engagement, um, the kind of follow-up to to Amelie. He was great in that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, people may just recognise him from like the Chanel ads for Chanel Bleu, but he's been in Paris Je T'aime. Um, he was he made his debut, which I didn't realise this was his very first film, in Brotherhood of the Wolf, mm. which is a fantastic, fantastic, weird French French kind of action movie. But yeah, he he just finished work apparently on Moon Knight, so he will be in that uh, as uh, Midnight Man uh, in March, which is going to be a, a very strange thing now to see him so soon after this this tragedy. But um, but yeah, he leaves behind a six year old son, like uh, thirty only thirty seven years old. Absolutely yeah. tragic stuff. Awful, absolutely awful. Uh, but some some really really good films uh, to watch if you want to pay tribute to Gaspar Ulliel, who passed away far too soon this week at the age of thirty seven. One other thing to mention this week, of course, is that it is New Empire Day as we are recording this. So just very quickly, wanted to tell you about the very exciting new issue of Empire that is on sale right now in all good and evil news agents. And this is a really exciting issue. It's a really exciting cover. In fact, this is one for all those people who think that we just put Star Wars and comic book movies on the cover because we have gone right back 50 years with this month's cover film. It is a celebration of Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. Oh, yes, which turns 50 this year. And inside we have an incredible, exclusive, extensive interview with the godfather himself, the dawn of the dawn, Francis Ford Coppola. And that is an absolute must-read, must-buy interview all on its own. But that's not all. We spoke to some of the stars of the film, including Talia Shire and Robert Duvall and James Caan. We look at the incredible career of the late, great John Casale, who only made five films. But those five films were The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, The Conversation and The Deer Hunter. My God, he passed away at the age of 42 and we have an in-depth profile about him. We have behind the scenes images from the movie. But it's not all about gangsters. Well, it kind of is, because we also have a big old story about the final series of Peaky Blinders, which starts very, very soon on BBC. And in that, uh, we sat down with Stephen Knight and Killian Murphy, who plays Jeff Peaky himself. I've never seen this show. We also have an interview, an in-depth interview with Ruth Nega, who is gathering Oscar buzz for her incredible turn in Rebecca Hall's Passing, which of course is available on Netflix now. We also look at 
an acclaimed Norwegian comedy drama called The Worst Person in the World. No, it's not about James Dyer. This month's God Among Us is Denzel Washington. Very exciting about that, as you will have already heard. Anything to do with Denzel gets me excited. In my section, the best section, review, uh, we have an oral history of the Café de Paris sequence in Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, which I spoke to Edgar Wright, a lot of crew members, Thomas McKenzie, Matt Smith, got the, the inside scoop on all the mirror stuff and the funky dance sequence in that movie. We have Dolph Lundgren talking about his iconic roles. We have Prano Bailey Bond talking about censor. James Wan on Malignant. We rank the movies of Tom Cruise. That is the live show we did in Finsbury Park a couple of months ago. That is the text version of that. The audio from that, in case people are asking or wondering if we're ever going to put that out as a podcast, the audio from that wasn't brilliant. So my instinct is that that will never be released as a podcast. That might change. That might change if I have time to really look at it and try to fix it. In Take 20, the news section, we talk about Spider-Man No Way Home. We talk to Channing Tatum about his directorial debut, Dog. We celebrate the life of Peter Bogdanovich. We look at the Oscar front runners. We, and there's loads of stuff in there, plus all the reviews of every film you could possibly care to want to care about <laughs> this month. It is a fantastic issue, a wonderful issue. It is an offer you simply cannot refuse. Go to any news agent, good, evil, or digital, pick up a copy of the latest issue of Empire and pay my wages, you absolute motherfuckers. Thank you. Much appreciated. Time now for our second guest this week, and we will have Jamie Dornan on the show. Jamie Dornan is the star of so many things. Uh, recently, you can see him in The Tourist on BBC. I think it's on the iPlayer now. Mm-hmm. But this week, we're talking to him about Belfast. Kenneth Branagh's film Belfast, which is a film uh, which chronicles semi-autobiographically Branagh's childhood growing up in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, in case you're uh, unaware of that. And uh, it's a wonderful film. Again, we'll talk about it in in the reviews section in a bit. Jamie Dornan plays the Branagh surrogate's dad who is a man who is struggling with his place in the world in Northern Ireland at that time when the troubles is really yet to flare, but was just on the cusp of becoming the proper troubles, the troubles proper. Uh, Struggling with raising his children and bringing up a family in a city and a country that will soon become a war zone in many, many ways. Uh, It is a fantastic film. Dornan is great in it. Helen spoke to him last year. Probably can't remember anything you spoke about. Did you speak to him about Barb and Star? Uh, We talked a a little tiny bit about singing. Uh, Yes, not enough. Uh, Obviously, I was, it was a fairly short interview and we hadn't, like, I hadn't seen The Tourist yet and things like that. So we, we, stayed pretty close to Belfast. We got into a little bit into Northern Ireland pol- Irish politics and issues, but I've tried to keep my accent understandable. And I didn't even <laughs> mention that my my cousin was at school with him. So well done me. Wow. Well done you. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Good stuff. Wee buns sticking out. Richardson's gets results uh, and the usual stuff. Uh, here we are. Helen O'Hara talking to Jamie Dornan. Accents stay manageable. Subtitles hopefully, required. Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully we're okay. <laughs> uh, here we go. Do please enjoy. Just saw the film this morning, really, really enjoyed it. Oh, cool, thanks. I mean, this came together pretty quick, right? This was in the pandemic. It's actually crazy you now when I think about how, <laughs> how quickly it came. Because also doing a load of press with Ken, I don't think it, it was revealed to me how quickly he wrote it too. You know, mm. he was like, you know, we, we shot it in uh, August, I think is when we started shooting it. This is, you know, in the during the first lockdown when the world 
before any news of a vaccination or anything. Nobody yeah. knew what was going on. And um, Ken, when we were doing press, was saying about how he, the early uh, been thrust into lockdown in March it got him thinking about you know his youth and how he always wanted to write the script. And so I was trying to sort of calculate that. Going, hold on a second, you started writing this in March, <laughs> three months. Yeah, you know, what? I mean, what's going on? I mean, I think I chatted to him in like June or something. You know, oh my probably, God. You know, the ink wasn't even dry on the on the script. <laughs> it's kind of insane, really, when you think about it. But a uh, very efficient uh, filmmaker, Sir Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you were you were writing something yourself at the time. You were writing something about home as well. Is that I right? Was, so it must have felt like synergy of some sort. I was. It was the first thing I said to him. It was, I was so like ensconced into Belfast at that time because I was writing a script that was set there uh, uh, at a different time period, but still in that city. And it, it's always Belfast is never far from my mind anyway, obviously. Um, but particularly at that time, because we were doing a ton of research and um, yeah, very much. Um, just that's where my head was totally at and we were doing these very long writing sessions at that particular time and then suddenly mm-hmm. in my inbox is a is a script called Belfast and uh, could Ken could I could I chat with Ken uh that day or that night I think or the next day maybe it was and so it was it was very strange where you feel like something else is talking to you yeah. moment you know wow um is that something you're going to go back to uh, yeah, I mean, we have We're still uh, going on with we, we, no, we've we, we've finished it. So, um, yeah, I probably can't say too much about it at the moment, but we're got very exciting people involved in it, and we'll hopefully get to make it at Amazing. some point soon. So, yeah, it's good. So, had you had you met Kenneth Branagh before? Like, is there a sort of ex Northern Irish mafia in the film industry that I'm not aware of? Yeah, are you, why are you not in? Like, what, you, <laughs> there's, there's still room. It's not that big a crowd. It's me and Jimmy Nesbitt and Liam Neeson and you know Richard Dormer, Ken's in there. Uh, yeah, we, we meet every Tuesday night. No, it's um, uh, no. I tell you what, though, um, I auditioned for Thor. Um, You're kidding. Not for not for Thor himself, but right. for one of his mates, uh, and uh, yeah, I wasn't. I could have played like Chris Hemsworth's leg or something, maybe. <laughs> but um, I, I I auditioned, and then when was that? Two thousand ten, ten or so, yeah, around then, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I remember. I remember when I it was a girl, woman called Randy Hiller, who's now head of casting at Disney, who I, who I saw a couple of weeks ago. Who's amazing, such a great woman, and uh, she was the casting director. And um, I remember uh, her saying uh, when she told Ken, like I didn't have any career to speak of at, at the time. And it, well, I did as a model or whatever, but not as an actor yet. Really, I'd done a couple of things, but mm-hmm. nothing really that had got me noticed. Really, and. Um, so uh, he was when she said, "Oh, this guy's from he's from Belfast and he's going to be auditioning," and they wanted me to do it in my own accent and everything. And I remember her that getting feedback that Ken was um, Ken was excited to see the audition because he'd enjoy the accent. Um, <laughs> and I remember thinking, "Oh, that's good. Maybe that will give me a little step up." But I talked to Ken; he doesn't even remember ever seeing Aww. the tape. So um, you know, there we go. Anyway, we got there in the end. But it worked out exactly. It yeah, worked out in the end. <laughs> 
So, I mean, so what? Are, I mean, this is obviously such a personal film for him. But from from what you've from what you've said about it already, and and sort of in, in past interviews, it sounds like he wasn't micromanaging your performance. He wasn't like, no, my dad wouldn't do that, therefore you can't do that. You know, it was very kind of inv- involving people rather than sort of um, prescribing stuff for you. Yeah, exactly. It was that's a great way of putting it. And it was it was it was the the opposite of pigeonholing us or the opposite of of backing us into a, a corner that maybe didn't totally feel right for what we planned to do with it. I'm sort of sort of speaking on behalf of Katrina here too, because it was kind of like everything was its own unit. There was a greater family unit that was very important, but then it felt like, you know, Judy and Kieran were their own sort of unit and then Katrina and I, and then the boys were their own, you know, separate uh, entities. And it was that. And I, as a result of that, um, you know, bearing in mind, we're playing as parents. I've, I've played characters before where I, I, I did a movie called My Dinner of Hervé, where mm-hmm. uh, Sasser Gervaisi, I'm pretty much playing him, like a different version of him, but it's based on life events that happened to him. And there was a very unique pressure that came with that. Yeah. Uh, I played Paul Conroy in A Private War, where Paul was on set for the entire time. He was ended up being our stills photographer. Um, wow. So again, I felt this different kind of pressure because Paul was there sat on the monitors <laughs> watching me be him. And sound like him and everything. So I, I I recognize what that fear is and that responsibility is. And I didn't feel any of that on Belfast. Mm-hmm. It was really freeing uh, that he, for some ungodly reason, trusted me to portray, you know, one of the most important people in his life, you know, mm-hmm. and um, bring what I wanted to, you know, it's not like, of course, we talked about what kind of a man his dad was and a lot of that was on the page anyway. And you're seeing these decisions he's having to make and sacrifices he's making for his family. And, um, but he definitely let me do my own thing with it. And, you know, would obviously, you know, keep an eye on it. If it wasn't the right thing, we're talking at a big level here. We're talking about Kenneth Branagh in a, in a big movie. And, you know, uh, he obviously just early on trusted that what my plans for it were, fell in line with his so as a result I just felt total freedom I've never felt freedom like that in a set in my life that's amazing and and it's not you know it's a very affectionate portrayal of a character but it's not it's not a a kind of hagiographic it's not like he had no flaws and he was a perfect guy he's he's a he feels human Jesus yeah far from it yeah exactly he does feel human and I feel that you get a real sense of the reality of that time and those and the, and the circumstances that these people were put into who didn't ask for it and who were suddenly um, faced with these immense challenges and you know seismic change in their community and then having to be forced to make these decisions to just keep your family safe above everything else, you know? And, um, you know, I think a part of it, you know, it, you know, you kind of said during press, that it's maybe the last time he really recognized who he was and knew who he was when he was nine years old in Belfast, yeah. you know, that's a big statement, you know? So, it resonates so much with Ken to this, to this day, obviously. I mean, he's written, made this movie about it, but I know how much it still carries through him that he's from there and from home and what that means to him. So that's 50 years on. So you imagine uh, his father only a little bit younger than, you know, in, a, in, a, in his early forties, then having to make that decision and where his dad's only ever lived in that, in that community to tear his family away from it. 
yeah. but to, for the right reasons, you know. Yeah. But um, I think he captures it really well, and you you really understand the sort of the the human side of 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 those um, uh, of being in those situations. And what I really loved about the film as well is it it, do, it doesn't sort of just rest on very easy sectarian messages. It, no. it, what it points out is the fact that it was everybody was under pressure to pick a side, and not picking a side was almost more offensive to these guys than picking the wrong side. Like yeah. you, you, you're from home. Like you know what yeah. it, it, that picking aside nonsense. It's you're all. We were all forced into that. You're all forced into it. Sometimes literally forced into it. Like someone on the street looking an answer, or you're going to get your head kicked in. Like I had many situations like that. That sense of identity, being from where we're from, is so skewed and difficult and hard to answer. And I spend my life trying to explain to people. And you're either you're either sort of brought up told you're one thing or brought up told you're another thing. You could be in the same street and and be be grow up one side of the street being feeling that they're very British and the other side only seeing themselves as Irish. Could it be enough just to identify as Northern Irish? No. People always want more. That that's not enough. You know, I've tried, listen, trust me, I've tried that. I've tried to say, oh, and yeah, I'm Northern Irish. Oh, but hold on, which side? I was like, oh, hey, fuck, here we go. Okay, <laughs> I've got to pick something here. But look, you know, I was growing up being told I was Irish and I've always stuck to that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's you know, that's just, that's what I was given. That's what I'm told, you know. What is fascinating about the movie and the way that's done is that, like, seeing it through the eyes of a nine-year-old who who, who hasn't had the the life experience and all of the collected, all the reasoning for side picking or whatever it is, it, it, the innocence of, of that and being thrust into this and having no understanding of why there'd be violence against someone purely because they go to a different church. And it's just, you know, it really highlights, you know, some of the sort of senselessness of the conflict. Yeah, absurdity. You know, I was going to you know, the absurdity of it. And I know that obviously the beginnings of it, I know some of the clear reasonings and 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 and, and the what the civil rights marches were about and, and they were rightly about and the mistreatment of Catholics uh in that part of the world was very evident and they were right to march. And but then what it became, and particularly during the 30 years when it became real tit for tat stuff. Mm. And that's the stuff that that that's for me is the hardest pill to swallow about about the 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 conflict is when it became that, it became literally like we kill one of yours, you kill one of ours, yeah. like that, that whole side of it. And so sort of seeing the sort of origins of that through the eyes of a child, I think is is really interesting. You get a very yeah. different sense of it than seeing through how Jim Sheridan portrayed it or whoever's gone before, you know, mm. uh, it's very unique, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Seeing seeing that the, the trucks roll in for the first time is a very different thing. I mean, I mm-hmm. yourself, you're about the same age as me, I think. So we kind of grew up with just armored trucks going down the road, people carrying automatic weapons. Just that was just background noise, you know. Totally. Um, but I I've never shied away from how middle class my upbringing was. Like I I will say that. Like I grew up in Hollywood, a really lovely part of Hollywood. But I went to school in Belfast, but a very nice school in Belfast and South Belfast and Bottom Malone, Malone Road. So like, but like, but even if you say, particularly to like Americans, I spent a lot of time, even that stuff you're talking about there, like the armored cars or seeing uh British army patrol in the streets with, with, with guns, which is no matter where you're from at home, you, you know what that is. Uh, wanting to meet your mates outside McDonald's in center town every Saturday and every other Saturday, not being able to do that because of bomb scares, like all that stuff that we took 
as normal is bonkers. Completely it's absolutely yeah. bonkers. And even thinking now back to like, um, you know, my dad was an obstetrician at, at the Royal. So, you know, over, he delivered over 6,000 babies from, you know, in West, predominantly, you know, from all over Belfast, but m- most of those 6,000 are, are from, from working class areas in West Belfast and North Belfast from both sides of the community. There's times where, um, because based on a difficult pregnancy that so-and-so was having and they, they uh, had connections to this or whatever, I remember like checking for fucking bombs underneath Jesus. dad's car. And I look that, that, by the way, that was a, a daily routine for so many people at home for oh, yeah. any, anyone who worked in law, mm-hmm. you know, and now and again, it would filter into other vocations that like that in itself. I remember doing it with dad, you know, and I'm talking from the most privileged of backgrounds from home. So it is, it's so hard to quantify it and to understand it, you know, how mad it was and how affecting it was growing up in a conflict society and a post-conflict society that it is now and will always remain. Um, division is still there in a massive, mm-hmm. massive way. Um, you know, I heard some stat about like how um, there's double the amount of peace walls post the Good Friday Agreement than there was pre the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> I mean, what is that? You know, and we're sitting here going, oh, no, it's all class now. Everyone gets along. It's not. It's not at all. And the the biggest oversight is um, this is all becoming something very different. But why this schooling isn't integrated education is it's so much of it would be fixed if there wasn't, what, three or four percent of schools are integrated. What is that? How is that? How have we got there in yeah. this day and age? It's shocking. I could have a very long conversation no, with sure. you about that, but we just yes. we, won't, we won't do so right now. But yeah, 100 percent agree. I mean, right. Well, let's talk about the, the film a wee bit yeah. as well, though. But like Jude, Jude Hill was a phenomenal, phenomenal find. Like, you know, are you nervous when you go into something like this? Like the kid has to be good. You have to yeah. have a really good kid. Yeah. And I've, I've been in situations where not that the kid isn't good, but it's been difficult because, yeah, I've got three kids myself. Mm. Uh, I know how their attention span can be and uh, how difficult it can be to communicate with them sometimes and get them to do what you want them to do. So it's very hard. And Jesus, we lucked out with Jude. I mean, he's just... He really took direction on, but he was really having fun too. You know, just it was like this perfect blend of someone having a really good time and just being so close to the character anyway, but also would really listen to Ken. And, you know, I, I've worked with adult actors who can't take direction, you know, so to have a nine year old boy who's able to, you know, listen and then um, apply uh was was like gold dust you know really was and just so much fun to be around and we just felt we were at this sort of like movie summer camp you know where we were just like a felt so lucky to be making this thing but also we were having fun and there's always like you know a football or lying around who oh we're always just mucking about with each other in between takes and um he brought so much youthful joyful energy to it all Jude and you know he's so incredible I mean the at the wake where I do Everlasting Love and Katrina and I have that dance and we did a we did um, a, a, a take where it was just really tight on Jude's face and he was reacting and he's like never seen his parents 
you know, together like that, dance together like that and sort of release after the sort of pain of what's happened. And they were just releasing this sort of joy that they needed to do. Um, it got to a stage where we couldn't give him a true eye line. So Katrina and I couldn't really dance because it would have been off-putting because where his eye line was, wasn't where we were. So we just sat and he was just reacting to like direction from Ken. And we were just like, the proudest parents <laughs> just watching his wee face honestly it was just like incredible just watching his those that that face that he has you know it's just he's, he's a joy i love him he's, he's absolutely amazing and it's, that's an incredible scene i was going to ask as well about you know the performance aspect because after seagull on a tire yeah. which was just one of the scenes of the year as far as i'm concerned like is yeah. this now something you demand in all of your all of your films there's got it's, to be a bit of it's funny i'm trying to think of the last time i have this uh, BBC HBO show coming out in, in the new year too that I there's a tiny little bit of I'm not sure I can call it singing but there's a bit where um, I'm a bit vocal let's say um, and I think I worked out that, that was like five productions in a row where I've sang I sang Wild Mountain Time I sang in, yeah uh, I sang in Barbara Star obviously I sang in this um, I listen it's it's a fun it's something that I enjoy that terrifies me that I can maybe do a wee bit so I think if you can and if you've particularly if you've done it you know it's amazing how that starts to creep into things more if you've if you've done it in recent things and suddenly it is becoming a part of the stuff you've been sent you know whether you wanted to or not you know so <laughs> listen I had fun but it was terrifying the dance moves were terrifying I'm not a I can sing a bit like but I, I I'm not a natural mover I mean, I read an interview where Katrina was saying you said that and then you went on the day and just like hit every mark, apparently. She so. is being far too kind here and, <laughs> and she's lying, is what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> it was a struggle for me. I, uh, um, you know, it takes a perfect cocktail of sort of drinks and, and the right music and the right people around me to feel comfortable enough to, to get to the dance floor. So it was a lot of sweat for me those days. <laughs> I mean, there could be a musical in your future if you've done it five times in a row now. You know, it could be building up. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, let's. I'm not never going to say never to that. No. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I mean, this this has been, I think, just massively welcomed so far. It's been it's been greeted with open yeah. arms. Um, you know, is is there anyone you're kind of worried about seeing it? Like, are you worried about it? You know, screening in Belfast or something? Or are you quite <laughs> excited to see what everybody at home thinks? I, I am excited. Listen, the response so far has been class and it's been really overwhelming at times and been at Telluride when it, when we premiered there and the, the initial response to it and the, all the notifications were like insane and it was like Jesus what's happening here um, and you're thinking like this can't continue and you know and it might not and, but you know there feels like a lot of genuine love and, um, and each audience will react to it differently and each place will react to it differently yeah that's the one I'm most I'm, I cannot wait to screen, we're screening at Belfast, at the Waterfront Hall, and uh, that will be something else. And you know, you <laughs> there's a way that you really want it to go, and you hope that it'll go. Um, so I'm just pinning everything <laughs> on that being the reaction. Um, but it's a big thing. It's a big thing for people at home to have a, a movie with the the likes of Ken involved and focus features and the whole everything around it um, about that place. You know, it doesn't happen to everywhere and um, hopefully it's embraced. And, you know, I think maybe there's some sort of in jokes that are very colloquial to home that may not have totally landed with other audiences that Jesus, if they're going to land anywhere, it's got to be Belfast. So we're hoping for that outcome. Yeah.
So even just seeing Samson and Goliath at the beginning of the film, I was like, ah. I know, I know. And it doesn't take much, does it? I mean, that is, we need to see those fellas. And then we're like, oh yeah, we're home. So yeah, (laughs) hopefully, yeah, that initial, that opening that we have, which is modern day Belfast and seeing it in all its sort of um, glory um, of which there is so much and Belfast is, has been like, always a brilliant place, but, you know, particularly now, it's thriving now, you know, really is. And uh, it's such a great scene there. So uh, opening with that, yeah, hopefully we hook them in <laughs> with that opening and then they they hang on for the ride. Amazing. Well, listen, thanks so much. Cheers. All right. Thanks, Alan. Thanks a million. Appreciate See it. Bye. See you later. Bye. 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 Okay, so that was Jamie Dornan. And if you want more Belfast interview-related fun, then the interview special I did with Kenneth Branagh himself will be available around about the time you listen to this. So dig in half an hour of Branagh goodness. Let's talk about Belfast. Let's talk about Belfast. Shall we now? Let's talk about it uh, on the Empire podcast. No! Uh, Except the Empire podcast says yes to Belfast, don't we? Hell's Bells, I feel it is only right that you should talk about this movie. Alrighty. So yeah, so this is uh, August 1969 um, after a Color you have opening. to say so it is after so it is okay um I'll, I'll review your wee film for you yeah tell um, us about the wee film yeah so this is it's oh, August. Film. <laughs> it's set in august 1969 in belfast in black and white um we meet the family of nine-year-old buddy who's played by newcomer jude hill who's fantastic i think mm, so and he lives in a quiet, working-class Belfast street with his parents, his older brother, uh, his grandparents, or I think, I'm not sure if they live with them or if they're just down the road, but they're always around the house anyway. They're just down the road. Just down the road. They're always around the road. house. We, He's got cousins don't. all over the place, so he does. And Buddy isn't really concerned with the world and politics uh, because he's nine. So he's concerned with getting home in time to see Star Trek. He's concerned with going to the cinema and the theatre, which is when this film bursts into actual colour because the whole place seems to come to life for him when he's when he's kind of escaping into these dream worlds. Um, but of course, you but know... he his... can't tell the difference between his waking life and his dreams. Is that right, Helen? Well, no, he can because one's in colour and one's in black and white. So it's very clearly delineated, Chris. Um, but very the problem helpful. is, of course, <laughs> there's all of this trouble, as you say, the troubles are brewing um, all around him. So the film opens with these very bucolic scenes of, you know, mothers calling their kids in from playing on the streets for dinner and everybody knows everybody else and everybody, you know, tell, buddy, your mum's calling you in for tea. You know, the whole thing. And then a riot erupts and then a a crowd comes storming down the street, threatening to burn out the Catholic families who live on this mostly Protestant street. Um, It's a Protestant riot in a Protestant area. So I I thought that was really good in that this this film isn't just about sectarian violence, it's also about the violence that each side in the sectarian conflict did to their own people, which is something that doesn't necessarily get talked about enough in in Northern Irish history. And so anyway, this this basically sets up a situation where uh, his parents, uh, played by Katrina Belf and of course Jamie Dornan, have to really decide, do they continue to live in Northern Ireland with all their family around them, uh, the grandparents played by Judy Dench and Kieran Hines, and all these cousins, all these uncles and aunts, do they stay there? Do they stick it out? Or do they go to England where he can get work, where he can have the whole family living with him in a big house with a garden? You know what do they do? So it's it's kind of play, playing that dilemma. What's more important? Is it the family and the people? Is it safety? Is it security? Um, and they're trying to wrestle with all these dilemmas. Uh, you know, look, this is sentimental because it's a nine-year-old's view of the world, and it's a sort of an expat's view of his kind of home country, if you like, in a way. Um, mm. And there is a it, it does have a big soppy heart to it, but at the same time, I feel like so does Ireland, and and it didn't 
you know, annoy me too much. Um, and it, and it has enough of the threat of violence, I think, along the along the edges to to sort of keep it grounded. Um, I've told these two this before, but I watched this with my parents over Christmas, and the the title card comes up at the beginning with the date on it, and my mum went, "That's the day we we thought we were going to be burned out of our house." So if you're looking to see how accurate this is in its portrayal of sectarianism erupting in the summer of 1969 in Northern Ireland, that's it's literally to the day uh, that this this stuff was really happening. And my mum actually ended up moving out of her house for for six weeks to a village in the country, and uh, while her dad found them basically somewhere else to live when things died down. So, you know, all of that kind of background to this film is. Yep. Pretty spot on. All the way through this, I was picturing just the two of you as kids running through the streets. That was <laughs> that was. This is how I understand it. I mean, I grew up in a very quiet, very calm, small town. You know, sixty miles north, so not not quite. Mm-hmm. But it is genuinely very close to certainly my mum's neighbourhood that she grew up in. Um, and and they're talking about you know there's bits where they're talking about going to the cinema and they name the cinema and my parents were, you know, debating <laughs> well would you have gone to that cinema because they're clearly living off the Antrim Road so is that that's not their local cinema is it you know it's literally <laughs> that level of detail we were getting into. I, I I had questions watching this but then I remember when we went to Belfast on the podcast tour when you you walked us around and you gave me a potted history of the troubles so we were walking around showcasing my spectacular ignorance of all this uh, of all this stuff but it it is it's a really really lovely film despite that kind of backdrop because it feels like to me that the, the troubles are you know they're window dressing and obviously they are to a certain it's, you know it's an inciting event as well but mm. it's a kind of a like a nostalgic look at childhood and Branner's own memories of what it was like growing up in Belfast. And you just feel the warmth of the community and sort of how mm-hmm. lovely it was. And there's a bit where Katrina Balfe is saying, you know, yes, we'll be safe in England, but here, and there'll be no one to look after our kids. Like here, everyone looks after them because everyone knows them and has known them their whole lives. And, you know, these kids are playing streets away at that age, but it's not a problem because they literally know the names of everyone on these streets. Um, you know, it's. It, I, I thought it was a really, really lovely film. I loved the use of colour. Uh, which they use when they when they go to the cinema. They go and see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and act as if it's a roller coaster, which I thought was terribly, terribly sweet. Um, I don't know how true to life that stuff is. It felt maybe like it was a little bit coloured by the lens of sort of warm, sort of you know, looking mm. back at you through a nostalgic sort of filter. But uh, mm. but it worked for me. I thought it was it was incredibly compelling and charming and a, a little bit educational for someone who <laughs> like me knows fucking nothing about what happened. So did you did you notice Buddy eating, reading Thor comics? I did notice yes. he was reading Thor comics, yes, which and wearing Brenna his did, international rescue outfit, which of course we all would have done. Um, yeah, it, no, it was lovely. It was a, it was a lovely little film. But I will have to get you at some point to refresh my history lessons and all this stuff. So I was like, <laughs> what? Okay, and they were the ones with the burning of the what? And yeah, basically each side was burning out people from the other side who had kind of like there were Catholic areas and Protestant areas, but there was obviously mm. some bleed through and some overlap around the edges of those areas. Because people would, you know, want to live in the Protestant area, but they couldn't find a house, and they could find a house at one road over, so they'd buy it, even though that was the Catholic area or whatever. Mm, Um, And and as the troubles began to brew, that became unacceptable to the paramilitaries, and they started trying to burn people out to to strengthen the divide in the community, essentially. Yeah, and it's it wasn't. I mean, people say Protestant Catholic, Protestant and Catholic, don't they? But it wasn't really religious so much as it was, you know, loyalist and republican. Yeah, but it It was political rather than. I mean, it's. Basically, there's an overlap between religion and identity and politics in Northern Ireland, which makes it all a big stew of mess, essentially. A big, a big messy stew. Uh, so it was. Interestingly enough, I thought that those aspects of the film felt a little bit 
forced as the movie goes on. Because I think Branagh needs feels the need to have to have stakes, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he maybe feels that the stakes aren't just oh do we do we maybe move because of the the looming specter of violence in this country? Do we maybe take our our kids out of it and go to England where it will be uh, in in theory anyway? Uh, safer, warmer, friendlier. Mm. Uh, didn't always work out that way for people who yeah. moved over to England, of course. Uh, but uh, I think as the that aspect, every now and again he comes back to it and it, it shakes you out of the warm, fuzzy reverie that the rest of the movie lulls you into. And that's fine to an extent. I didn't think those bits were quite as successfully mounted as the rest of it. But I think the rest of it is absolutely terrific. Uh, I, I, and it it's interesting. I've lived now in, in England for 20 years, something mm. like that. And this was not just an exercise in nostalgia, uh, but it certainly did remind me. My childhood, like Helen's, was very, very different. I grew up in the countryside in a completely different decade. And uh, I grew up in, I grew up with, uh, we both did, we grew up with the troubles already very much established. Belfast was something that was forbidden to me. I was never allowed to go to Belfast until I was of a, a certain age. Um, my mum and dad would have, my mum in particular would have conniptions if I even raised the possibility uh, you know, because I we grew up in an, in an era, and we don't really have time to get into this right now. But we grew up in an era <laughs> where, you know, of police checkpoints and yeah. and of walking around the streets with with police, it was girls, armed it? police, and, yeah, yeah, and 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 all that sort of stuff, and segregation very much being in place uh, along religious uh, religious lines, and going to a, a Protestant school or going to a Catholic school, uh, all of this stuff, which just seems wild now. But this movie reminded me of. Yeah, some of the negative aspects of growing up in Northern Ireland as a, as a kid, but also reminded me of some of the really positive aspects, the warm, the warmth of it all, the the familial nature of it all, mm. and little things like conversations I I had remembered having as a kid, but this movie also has. There, there's literally conversation between Jude and one of his cousins, I believe it is, in the movie. Uh, about whether you can tell someone is Protestant or Catholic based on their yep. name. Uh, and that is a conversation I literally had many, many times. And the answer is, for the most part, you can in Northern Ireland tell whether someone is Protestant or Catholic. Helen O'Hara, that is a Catholic name. Uh, Chris Hewitt is a Protestant name. Uh, and <laughs> that's the way it is. Anyway, someone will come along and confound you every now and again. But for the most part, those those are conversations that do happen in real life. Uh, and I just, I, I, I enjoy the hell out of it. Mm. It was probably made specifically for me and Helen in a, in <laughs> a strange much, way. Actually, yeah. But it is great though. Yeah, but it's not just like because Branagh is a very interesting director in that he is very hit and miss. Sometimes those misses are his fault, sometimes they're not. I don't think Artemis Fowl, for example, was necessarily his fault. I think yeah. there were factors that there that were beyond his control. Uh, you know, but he's also made things like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So he's made some real stinkers in his career, which I think he would admit to. And he's also made some cracking, cracking films as well. So you never know what you're going to get with him as a director. Uh, but I thought this was fascinating. And I think benefits in the same way that I thought something like um, All Is True, his, his movie about Shakespeare he did a few years ago. Um, I think benefits from him just being really infested personally yeah. in the story and you can really feel that in a way that for example something like Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit might not have benefited from that personal <laughs> touch uh, I think it's absolutely terrific uh, we gave this one four stars uh, you can probably tell Helen and I could talk about this yeah. until the wee hours the morning so we could but uh, we're not going to uh, I will point out as well that uh, all the performances are great across the board yeah, but particularly Kieran Hines I feel yeah, like we haven't talked about him enough I thought Kieran he Hines. was 
absolutely stunning. I feel like he's an actor who's never quite had his due from films. Um, he's good in everything. He's good in everything. He's, I mean, if you saw him in The Terror, he's great in that. Mm-hmm. If you saw him mm-hmm. in Sense and Sensibility back in the day, was it Sense mm-hmm. and Sensibility? Persuasion, Persuasion yeah. back in the day. Fantastic. Julius Caesar in, in Rome. Oh, brilliant. Four stars then for Belfast, so it is. And next up, let's have a little dander down Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Hell's Bells. Yes, yeah, so this is about a a drifter, uh, a man called Stanton Carlyle, Bradley Cooper, um, his character, who we see basically at the beginning of the film setting fire to his old, old life, uh, in a manner of speaking, and setting off on a bus where he ends up joining a carnival. Now, it's not clear if he's kind of drifted into this or if he's done it deliberately. I think he's drifted. But in the carnival, he starts kind of inveigling his way into the system and kind of placing himself in places where he can be useful, where he can continue to get a crust of bread because this is depression era America and nobody has any money. And also starts learning the uh, tricks of a tarot card reader who's played by Tony Collette and her kind of mentalist husband played by David Strathairn. So he's kind of beginning to make himself useful to people, beginning to learn things, beginning to be able to do stuff. He develops a whole new bit of an act for uh, Rooney Mara, who's the kind of incredible electric woman at the carnival, and he kind of finds his way in. But he's always kind of looking for the advantage, always kind of trying to figure out a way to a better life. And you have to worry about what he's going to do to get that and where it's going to take him. That's kind of Everything I've just said only relates to the first sort of half of this film. There's an entirely different second half um, that involves Kate Blanchett. There is a sort of a, a slight time jump in the middle. I'm not going to talk about too much, but it goes to some places and it takes some swings. And I saw this on the same day I saw Scream and I was not expecting this to be by far the more disturbing of the two mm-hmm. films I saw mm-hmm. that day because this really gets under your skin and stays there. You know, it starts off with, you know, yes, a carnival, but this is Guillermo del Toro doing a carnival. So, of course, it's going to be the kind of darker, more twisted, you know, more kind of freaks side of carnival life and freaks. But I mean, the old silent movie, not, you know, using that as a term of abuse. It is a really... um kind of sinister place from the get-go. He arrives in the pouring rain, we see snow, we see sleet, we see just misery all around and this kind of oppressive sense of unease basically throughout. You're never quite sure who you can trust, who you should trust, who you should be rooting for. Um, And I kind of loved that about it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. Uh, As I said previously, I think this is uh, Guillermo's best film since Pan's Labyrinth. And listen, the films since haven't exactly been, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Oscar winner, The Shape of Water, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Shape of Water and uh, Crimson Peak and Hellboy Two, The Golden Army, as we said earlier on, and uh, and Pacific Rim, but and and <laughs> but this is for me, I, absolutely on a level with Pan's Labyrinth, um, meticulously designed, um, meticulously planned. Um, thematically on point. Uh, but the thing I loved about it was that it just felt like I felt like I was being enveloped in doom mm. uh, right from the off. It is a film noir. It's got a lot of the pillars of film noir in it. Uh, but because of that, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to assume that something bad is going to happen to our quote unquote hero, Stanton Carlyle, played brilliantly by Bradley Cooper. Uh, and as Guillermo pointed out in the interview, he's in every single scene bar one. Uh, 
Yeah. So he gets he uh, he has all the heavy lifting to do, and he has to introduce you to a character, get you on side with him, uh, but then watch from a distance as this man slowly reveals himself to be a monster, and he starts on this inexorable slide. Yeah, it just I felt I I felt clammy and claustrophobic mm. all the way through this movie as I as I watched things unfold. Yeah, no, and I think I think it's it's an extraordinary cast as well. I mean, you know, David Strathairn immediately was incredible. Mm-hmm. I thought Rooney Mara was really good in this. I thought at first she was kind of miscast, but she really really works for that role. And then Kate Blanchett turns uh, turns up, and she's like this terrifying alien creature. She is she genuinely doesn't look entirely human in this. She's just so perfect and so beautiful that she just looks like she's come from another planet and it works so well in her scenes with um with Cooper. Just absolutely off the charts. Um yeah, I think it's amazing. It's, it, as you say it's amazing looking the way this is shot, the way it's designed, those sets, absolutely incredible. Um but really, really twisted and really, really dark. So do not go into this expecting a laugh riot at all. I mean, it's, it's called Nightmare Alley. I mean, but, yes, but you know. At the same time, this is based on a William Lindsay Gresham novel, so it's out there. You can, you can, you can find that to read if you will. If you will, it was also made into a film in 1947, an RKO movie starring Tyrone Power. That film is not so readily available. I think it's on YouTube. I have, you know, if you want to watch it on YouTube, you can, you can do so. Um, but. You know, this is not a genre piece, despite what the title may may say. If you know the original film or you've read the book, you'll know that uh, it is purely a film noir. So it is a genre piece. But when I say genre, what I mean is Guillermo del Toro's predilections as a director have tended towards the fantastical and the horror tinged, uh, overtly horror tinged. Uh, this is not that, although I think it's not as far removed from those genres as perhaps we were told initially. But yeah, terrific stuff, terrific stuff. Um, I'd go five for this, but we have given it four. Ben Travis of this parish has given it four stars. Famously Uh, harsh. Famously (laughs) harsh, Ben Travis. Uh, Ben and I have had words, uh, but he's sticking to his guns. And given that he is one of the most notorious serial killers uh, operating today, I have decided to leave him be. (laughs) Uh, Four stars then for Nightmare Alley. Uh, Just a couple of very, very quick things uh, as well. Um, Mass is out this weekend on Sky Cinema. It's out right now, in fact, as we're talking about this. And this is a film written and directed by Fran Kranz, who you may remember as the hero... Uh, eventual hero of Cabin in the Woods from a few years ago, uh, but now he has made his directorial debut with a really heart-wrenching movie about parents, two parents, played by Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton, who are whose son was killed in a school shooting, a mass school shooting some years back, and they meet up in a church anteroom with the parents of the shooter, who also died in on that day. And those parents are played by Anne Dowd and Reed Burning. And that's basically the movie. The movie is these four people in a room having a conversation about that, about guilt and loss and grief and vengeance and pain and suffering and penitence and all those heavy themes. And I think this movie is not getting any traction in the Oscar race. And that is an absolute crime because these are four of the greatest performances you will ever see. This is not an easy sit by any stretch of the imagination, but it is absolutely wonderful. And I would heartily recommend it. And some of the best performances you will see uh, all year from the quartet. I don't think there's a standout. They all get moments. They all get different notes to play. Um, 
and uh, they are just wonderful. So Mass, it's in some cinemas right now and on Sky Cinema and Now TV uh, for you to watch this weekend if you choose. We don't have a review up yet for this, but I am very much firmly in the four-star camp. Again, not an easy sit, but uh, absolutely rewards the time that you will put into it. Four stars then for Mass. For me, there you go. Uh, and last but not least, Helen said, I sat through this movie, so I'm damn well going to talk about it. It is <laughs> Journal for Jordan. And I'm interested by this, Hells Bells, because this is uh, another film directed by Denzel Washington. And yeah. he hasn't directed many films. Uh, and it stars Michael B. Jordan. Yep. And and yet you, you did not get on with this movie, did you? I very, very much did not. No. So um, you think he should do The Equalizer 3? <laughs> I don't recall saying that to you, Chris, actually, when we were talking beforehand. Um, yeah, look, I, I thought this was a bit of a mess. So, uh, yeah, so this is the story of Dana, who's a writer for the New York Times, uh, played by Shantae Adams. This is a real person. It is a re- based on a real-life memoir. And she is introduced to uh, an army buddy of her dad's, a uh, much younger army buddy of her dad's, um, who is First Sergeant, First Sergeant Charles Monroe King, who's played by Michael B. Jordan. The two of them start a relationship, which is chronicled in exhaustive detail in this story, um, and eventually kind of starts talking about getting together and, and settling down together and everything else, when, of course, war interrupts and he's sent away to war. It is not a spoiler for me to say that he dies when he's away, because the film sort of has a flashback structure that makes it very, very clear from about minute two that that happens. So this is all looking back at their time together from the perspective of him having died. Um, the problem is, I think, just pacing, structure, storytelling, again, it just doesn't make any sense as a story. It spends about an hour and a half, probably, on the love story, which is occasionally very effectively played, which has Michael B. Jordan turning up being romantic to someone, which is definitely going to work for a segment of the audience, no question. But the whole idea of the journal and their son, Jordan, are completely sidelined to the point when when the film does remember to focus on them, you're like, why am I supposed to care about this and what relevance does this have? And really, that just feels completely upside down. You know, I'm not saying this should have been extremely loud and incredibly close and make it all about the kids, but I do think that that needed to be more a part of the structure and more making the journal for Jordan kind of this, the heart of this story instead of kind of an afterthought. So I just find it incredibly frustrating. I also feel like with the best will in the world, um, you know, Charles Monroe King died. This book was written by someone who desperately loved him. And he is given a very idealized character. Maybe he was this this awesome. But literally the only fault that this film gives him is that he cares too much about his men to always be there for his family members. And that's barely a flaw in the concept of the film, you know? So I just felt like there was, Michael B. Jordan was doing everything he could with that part and giving him as much kind of nuance and depth as possible. He did feel like a real person, but you were just like, this this can't be all there is, right? There's got to be more to it than this. And and there just wasn't. So I, I just find it incredibly frustrating. I, I think both Adams and Jordan are in really good form. I think, you know, Denzel can clearly work with actors. There's no question about that. But just this script and the structure of it was outright bad. Yikes. Yikes. So last and least for me. That's a shame. That is a shame. Two stars then for a journal for Jordan. Anyway, on that note, on that rather subdued and sombre note, that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. 
Join us next week for more film-related fun as we hit episode 499. We absolutely <gasps> are definitely heading to episode 499. I haven't got this wrong, have I? I've, Pretty I've, sure. Pretty yeah, sure. okay. Because I've kind of so. fucked up before Christmas. Anyway, it's fine. Uh, episode 499 is going to be next week, and we'll be joined by... Romola Garay, who is, of course, an actor who has turned director with the excellent horror movie Amulet. And we'll be joined by the legend that is... Donnie Yen. Ooh. Also, yeah, very exciting indeed. So do tune in next week for some more formulated fun. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my two colleagues of such lethal cunning squad cast names, L-O-T-R-H-O-H, Helen O'Hara. Yeah, I had no inspiration today. Too late. I wasn't going to say, <laughs> but it was pretty evident. It's pretty obvious, yeah. Yeah. L-O-T-R-H-O-H. It is goodbye from, speaking of lack of inspiration, Lat Wee Fella, So I Am. Well, I was trying to, you know, fit in and stuff. James Dyer. Bye, James. Bye. 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 Bye, bye, bye. All right, and it's goodbye from me, Tato O'Neill. See what I did there? That was actually quite clever, and I took something and I ran with it, and Tato, Tato Crisps, and yeah. Can I say something controversial? Yeah. I don't like Tato Crisps. What? Oh, is that because you don't like the Northern Irish Tato Crisps and actually that the actual Irish Irish Tato Crisps are, are superior? Is that the reason why? This no. is like the mummy of crisps. I just, I don't understand either of you two. I like Mr. Tato just fine. He is a giant potato that lives in a castle. That is fine. I am on board with his backstory. I have no problems with that. The crisps themselves, I find just unsatisfying. They're not walkers, well, what about, are they? What Let's about be honest. Tato prawn cocktail? Like, those are my sister's favourite. Why the fuck would I eat prawn cocktail crisps? I mean... <laughs> Tato smoky bacon? Again, they're not walkers. No, no they're walkers. Not. Oh, no, they're walkers. G- no, no, not to, no to walkers. No, McCoy's. I mean... I see McCoy's. I could take or leave McCoy's. They're no walkers either. Yeah, Brannigan's. Back in the day, Brannigan's. Oh, oh roast beef and mustard roast beef and mustard. Oh. They don't make those anymore, do they? Oh, I feel like we're slightly off topic again. Oh, oh but they're so good. They're really thick oh. as well. Very thick and mustardy oh and all. Oh, lovely stuff. Yeah, lovely yeah. stuff. Oh, at university, I would, I would have a packet of roast beef and mustard brannigans. I'd, I'd have a lion bar and a Coke. Oh, it'd be so good. See, I was always about these strawberry fridge milkshakes and the Ginster's cheese and onion pasties. I had that every oh. single day for lunch oh. at university. It's astonishing that I'm yes. not dead. Maybe you are. <laughs> it's astonishing. It is really astonishing. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I'm off to... They don't make Brannigans anymore. No, no they don't. It's because Brannigan died. <laughs> he did. He fell into a crisp-making machine. Yeah. Oh, he provided the he, he provided the roast beef for the final batch. And um, yeah, it's not true. That's not true, by the way. No, um, no we made that anyway, up. Anyway, yes, we made that up. We should Cannot probably go now. Clear. We should, we should yeah, probably... Yeah, we may have we should, lost our minds at this point. Yeah, so, yeah. anyway. <laughs> Anyway, come and see this live, people. Come, come and see, and see this it. Live. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Come and see us live, folks, because you'll see three people who won't be able to tell the difference between <laughs> their wacky lives and dreams. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.